3: Today is Friday, October 22nd, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered streaming live on the Black Star Network from Atlanta. John Hope Bryant. he is the founder of Operation Hope. This week, we will be in Atlanta with him for the eighth annual Hope Global Forum. We'll talk with John about what he achieved this week and also how he wants to lead an economic renaissance for African-Americans and other minorities with Operation Hope. Also, folks, we we'll have a fantastic interview with a le- legendary, iconic, Ambassador Andrew Young, former U.S. Congressman, former U.N. Ambassador, former mayor of Atlanta. We talk about civil rights, talk about Dr. King, we talk about mission in life and purpose. First of all, he's amazing, smart, but also hilarious. You don't wanna miss it. Also, folks, uh, Melissa Conyers-Irvin, she is the first elected city treasurer in Chicago and we talked about how she is using the power of her office to ensure that African Americans are getting their fair share of private equity dollars and over the $9 billion pensions that in the city of Chicago. Also, of course, Ryan Williams, the co-founder and CEO of The Gathering Spot, uh, a private club operating here in Atlanta, D.C., is going to be opening in L.A. and how he is trying to connect people all across the globe. Also on today's show, uh, I moderated one panel this week uh, about action that should be taken in the C-suite. We'll talk with you here from the Pret CEO of Georgia Power and a top official of the National Urban League. Also, a fantastic panel discussion between John Hobryan and Lisa Osborne Ross, who is the CEO of the powerhouse PR firm, Edelman. She cut to the chase, honest and straightforward. Don't want to miss that conversation. And of course, folks, we'll show you the interview that I did 10 years ago with retired general Colin Powell when I was with TV One and when he was being honored by the NAACP. Of course, he passed away this week. And so, we look back at that conversation. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's
2: got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is.
3: Folks, glad to have you here on Roland Martin Unfiltered this week in Atlanta. uh, Hope Global Forum, the eighth annual Hope Global Forum, sponsored by Operation Hope, took place here uh, because of COVID. They did not have the normal 5,000 folks here. But John Hope Bryant, who's the founder of Operation Hope, we sat down and talked about how this week was, was important in terms of moving their vision forward to achieve economic, social justice for African Americans and other minorities. Here's our conversation. All right, John, so Global Hope, Hope, Global Forum, over it. This was a totally different experience nice. than the previous seven. You didn't have it last year. Uh, and we it
4: s- it virtual, It's all virtual. It was virt- all
3: virtual. It was all virtual last virtual. year, but this year uh, it, w- it was a hybrid, so uh, your thoughts.
4: Um, well, I, I think from the feedback I've gotten, I think it was spectacular for the audience, and f- which is what it's all about, for, to inspire people it was a different model. We, we, with COVID and the Delta variant coming out, we didn't want to take any uh, chances on anybody's health. Yours, uh, Ambassador Andrew Young's, the last living uh, senior lieutenant to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 89 years young. No, doesn't want to take any chances with. I'd be, I'd be devastated if I did something to impair his health, you know? And all, he had these he had billionaires next to millionaires, next to thousandaires, next to somebody trying to buy some air. I mean, it was every white, black, red, blue, uh, CEOs of the biggest companies in the world. 90% of these speakers decided to come in personally. We gave them a choice between virtual or in person, and to my utter amazement, they said they wanted to show up. And the few who didn't show up, it was a scheduling conflict. Um, Even Reggie Jackson was trying until late last night trying to get here. So I think that given that we we went from all virtual in a few months in 2020, to, we were going to do a meeting mostly in person, then Delta variant hit, we moved back to mostly virtual. We thought it would be 20% uh, in person and 80% virtual. And it actually flipped, at least on the speaker side, to 80 to 90% in person. The rest was virtual. We then had to make a decision about the audience, about the delegates. We've had 5,000 plus delegates before. Um, We decided to crunch that down, shrink that down to four 100. Actually, it was 300. and We actually ended up accepting 800 RSVPs because everybody was somebody we, or at least they thought they couldn't, we couldn't say no to them. <laughs> we don't argue over somebody else's importance. We, if you want to be here, we want you here. And uh, it, it worked out beautifully. It wasn't too crowded, uh, enough for warmth. We talked about this. But you had, and we had these uh, labels. Uh, I think it was green for you can hug me or shake my hand. It was yellow for a fist kick or mm-hmm. an elbow or... A, or and red was, stay the hell back. Stay red. Red yeah, was, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Stay... Just wave. Wave, just wave, wave. wave. <laughs> and wave. And it just really, people respected everybody's distance. Uh, it was really quite beautiful. Uh, three days of magic in a bottle. I had
3: someone post. We were we've been live for all three days. It's an honor to have you here, yep. by the way. I was glad to be here. Yeah. His brother posted, he said, he said, what does this do? He said, you know, what's the value? What 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 comes out of this? Mm. What, what answer that question? What is the value?
4: Mm. The value uh, is the young brother who walked up to me on my way to this interview who said this just changed my life. He said I, I didn't think that anybody thought like me. I thought I was out here in the wilderness all by myself, trying to be an entrepreneur, trying to be a black man in tech technology, uh, trying to own a business, trying to create jobs in my community, thinking that uh, social justice could be achieved economically. But I'm thinking I'm by myself. He came from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, at the recommendation of somebody else. He created a $2 million startup in tech. Even though he raised $2 million as a young black man, he clearly, as I looked in his eyes, had what it took to succeed. He felt like he was all alone. He said, "Today, being here the last three days, completely transformed his confidence, his belief in himself, his self-esteem." You know, we're not we're not islands. We're we are interconnected. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. Energy matters. We just talked about energy off mm-hmm. camera. Um, giving people permission to dream. You know, we're you and I were growing up. Capitalism was a, was a dirty word. You go to church, making money was a dirty word. What we are learning is it's not money's not evil, it's the love of money mm. that's evil. What we're learning is that capitalism's not bad, it's bad capitalism, like slavery, which was bad capitalism. That's evil. Uh, but when, and, and, and it's good to, to, to see three days of consistency. Black, white, up, rich, poor, you don't know what political party they're from, everybody's saying the same thing. And, uh, and it, they're saying what they're doing. So this is not some kumbaya party. Mm-hmm. $100 million committed by Twitter. That's gone to black banks. Well, that's material. The profits from that created five Hope Inside locations of Operation Hope inside of black banks. That's material. SunTrust CEO showing up, sorry, truest CEO, formerly SunTrust, Bill Rogers today, announcing we're going to be in 1,000 Hope and, uh, truest branches for Hope Inside. That's unbelievable. They only have 2,000 branches, not only. They have 2,000 branches, making us 50% of all branches. When you create these events, you create a timeline. You create a deadline. You create a sense of expectation that, uh, OK, I need to do something by that date, right. because I'm going to be held publicly accountable. We call this a, 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 a an annual meeting for the people. Mm-hmm. And because Operation Hope is owned by the people, uh, because we're a nonprofit. The public has a right to know what we're we're doing with their money that is invested in Operation Hope. They also have a right to know what's going on with these uh, corporations and the government. This is a public accounting. And uh, there was one commitment made tonight, uh, today, by Airbnb's co-founder to uh, help to bring in, I think it's 20,000 Afghan refugees, to put them in Airbnb homes. Uh, Operation Hope is going to help him with that. There was a commitment uh, made. Uh, well, Cri- TD Jakes reported out on what he's doing in Atlanta uh, to bring. He's th- developer here in Atlanta, Bishop TD Jakes, right next to uh, Tyler Perry Studio. Unbelievable what he's going to be doing on, on those acreage uh, right next to the military uh, facility that Tyler Perry took over. Um, I- I'm just thinking about all of the the people who came here, Tony Wrestler. T- 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 Atlanta Hawks talking about what they're doing to give blacks into the pipeline mm-hmm. through the HBCUs. So, this is not a talk fest. This is not a, a, a brag fest. This is a do-fest. And it's about holding folks publicly accountable but also celebrating those who succeed. See, I think the the, the biggest... And we raised 50 grand of venture capital for a new black inventor on a, on a pitch event two nights ago, right off the floor. Actually, we raised $150,000 mm-hmm. for I started it with $50,000, $100,000 joined. Or, uh, See, the, the, the thing for me, when we talk about accountability, I,
3: you know, we've, we've, we've dealt with all of these big announcements uh, in the post-death of George Floyd. Yep. And, you know, I've had these meetings with people who have made these announcements and commitments to black-owned media. And what I've said in my conversations to them is, I'm not praising you for press releases. Mm. When you actually do it, mm. is when I'll praise you. Mm. And I was talking was talking to uh, the CMO of General Motors and, and and their whole advertising team, Carrot Densu. And I said, "Let me just be clear. I said because I think one of the things that we have done as African Americans, we have praised folks for small things mm. that." made us feel good. Oh, this this, this one brother, one mm. sister got a point. Okay, mm. but it, which, which, which is great, it's appreciated, but how are you changing it for a multitude of people? Yep. And I think that's the thing that for a lot of people, they don't, re- they hate the accountability part, yep. but it's necessary because otherwise, it's just announcement after announcement, yep. but it's not tangible and real
4: yep. for the people who are most impacted. Walmart to that point, Walmart uh, CEO, Uh, announced their their average employee pay now is 18 bucks an hour and going up. B of A announced uh, that they went from, from, well I don't know where it was, but it's $20 an hour for every employee including the little, uh, not the little, but the um, part-time tellers. Now, Roland, they're going a dollar a day per year for five years. Get the average employee paid to twenty five bucks an hour. That's material. Right. I mean everybody in that ballroom didn't have a job or who has a cousin boo-boo should have been running out the door trying to get a job at Bank of America right. at twenty-five bucks an hour that's that's real money. Uh, we we I mean what I love about this is everything's trackable. Like you don't need to take my word for it. Go go look for yourself and see right. what they're doing. Right. Um, also I've got four million clients. So it's I'm not in the conference business. Like I'm not in the convention business or the forum business. I'm in, the do, I'm in the transformation of mm-hmm. life business mm-hmm. and the scaled mm-hmm. impact business and maximizing human potential. All this is is a annual accounting of what we've been doing all year round. This, so it makes us a little different than most organizations. You have a motivational speaking group, and that's what they do. You have an, a, 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 an operating nonprofit, and that's what they do. We are a bit of a blend. Mm-hmm. We operate on the ground. 180 locations in 30 states, as you know, raise credit scores 54 points in six months, 120 points in 24 months. Nothing changes your life more than God or love, than moving your credit score 120 points. Half of black folks have a credit score below 640, Mm -hmm. which means half of us are locked out of the free enterprise system. You can be the nicest person on the planet. Go to church every Sunday. Be gracious and kind. Still can't get a loan to start a small business because that requires a 700 credit score because it's risky credit. Can't get a good mortgage with a good interest rate because that's a 680 credit score. Can't get a decent car loan, that's a 650 credit score. But we don't know what we don't know. It's what we don't know Mm -hmm. that we don't know that's killing us, but we think we know. We had a debate on your, well, it was on Twitter and then on your show about whether there's any benefit to home ownership. What are you talking about? I mean, oh, the bank owns a loan. No, you own the home. You own the home until you default. If you default, then the bank owns the home. But by the way, if I borrowed, if you borrowed the money from me, I'd own your home. So that's not a miracle. But if you own the home and you understand financial literacy, which is what we're teaching in these Hope Inside locations, you own the appreciation, you own the depreciation, and you own and you get a write-off of every mortgage payment for twenty of the thirty years because most mortgages are interest payments, which means that's the best way to get wealthy in America is owning a home, but only 41% of us are owning a home. So this work on the ground, we created $3.5 billion of homeowners and small business owners at Operation Hope before we even showed up at a forum. Mm -hmm. So I could get a little defensive or cocky about, uh, it's not my nature, it's not my style, but I'd but what I, I, about a statement of gee, is this important? I'd rather reframe it and say, when you got the power, you don't need to use it. I've got nothing to prove. We proved all that we do every day of our work. This is about you. This is about you. This is about all of you, and giving you access to what I
3: already have. But see, here's why. Here's why. One, why I get the question? Why I have no problem even answering the question? Oh, I love because I love constructive because here's actually is that even. To me, it's not even constructive criticism. What it simply is, is, to your point earlier, when you don't know, you don't know. Because part of the problem is that I dare say 90-95% of the conferences and the gatherings are talk fest. Well, and and, and as somebody who's moderated a lot of these conversations, I'll go on these panels and I will go, okay, we were here last year. Where's the meat? What the hell changed? Right. Why are we having the same conversation right. that this year that we had last year? Right. And in fact, I've done, I do sessions now where I say at the outset, okay, we're gonna spend, if it's an hour, we're about to spend 10 minutes on the problem. right? And the other 50 minutes <laughs> on the solution, on the solution That's right. as opposed to normally what happens yeah. is 50 minutes on the problem admiring the problem and all is this is that we yeah. can't do this we can't do that yeah. And then it's 10 minutes left and now you're trying to hurry up to get all five panelists laying out um, What the solutions are because for me that doesn't help anybody to me you should walk away from a
4: conference yep, and be able to implement something Short term, immediately. Do you know why we do that, Roland? There's a reason why. We mean well. Our people are, we've been doing so much with so little for so long, we can almost do anything with nothing. We are an incredible people. When the rules are published and the playing field is level, we kill it. Professional sports, the arts. I mean, we even kill it in tennis, and golf, and F1 racing, and NASCAR, places we've never even showed up. This capitalism and free enterprise thing, which is the whole game, is what we don't know that we don't know. Right. And versus acknowledging and admitting, I'm clueless here, I need some help because God gave us two ears and one mouth so we listen twice as much as we talk, we fake it. And, and, and or worse, we specialize in the thing that we can actually control, which is the problem. The, the problem narrative is easy. It's easy to be a critic, right? So, there, and, and here's worse. There's three. Uh, there's three mentalities. Put this in the book. My book up from nothing, a surviving mentality, a thriving mentality, and a winning mentality. Now anybody looks at you, sees a winner. You you knew you were a winner. Knew they were a winner before they ever won anything. A winner knew they were a winner before they ever won anything. And a winner is a builder. You built a company. You built you built an infrastructure. You have built a system. You built a portfolio. You're building your life. You built a brand up from nothing, and you're infecting everybody. I walked in your studio, and everybody's got the same building ethos, the same sense of humor, the same energy, the same sense of love as you do. You're building a character and a culture. The opposite is also true. You hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. So builders, winners are builders. Then the the thriving, that's the middle class. Those are getting people. Get me a promotion. Get me access to a country club. Get me a vacation. Get me right to vote. it, it, that's the majority of America. The the third group is the problem. Mm-hmm. The third group are the are the folks with a surviving mentality in a thriving world. Who are spect- We talk about who are spectators. Who are spectators? Who are experts at what they are against, not an expert at what they're for. And so now you're you're admiring the problem because that's what you understand. Mm-hmm. And when you go into a barbershop in a in a in a 700 credit score neighborhood, black or white. They're talking about their ideas and, and they're talking about how they're going to move on those things. You go to a barbershop and a 500 credit score, equal brilliance, but bad culture, they're talking about other people. You go to a winner's, winner's barbershop, here's what I'm doing. You go to the barbershop where people feel defeated, they're talking about other people, either celebrities or, 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 or people they admire, but also often... I don't like Joe. I don't like, you know, I don't like Roland Martin. Well, let me tell you something. If Roland, I don't understand people, why, how could you not like anything here you see? You should just be like, this is amazing. It's cool. You may not even like how he does it or how I do it. But it's like, you know what? They're succeeding. They're killing it. All you should be is, that's fantastic. But if I don't like me, I'm not going to like you. If I don't feel good about Mm -hmm. me, it's hard for me to feel good about you. If I don't respect me, don't expect me to respect you. If I don't love me, I don't have a clue how to love you. And here's the big one. If I don't have a purpose in my life, I'm gonna make your life a living hell. Always great to talk with my man,
3: John. All right, folks, when we come back, my interview with Ambassador Andrew Young, man. First of all, it's always great to talk with him, but the stuff that he broke down, civil rights going back to the past and then present, you do not want to miss this conversation right here, only on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
0: saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where you going? Hey, I'm Arnaz Jake. Black TV does matter, dang it.
3: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy Jacob Lattimore, and you're now watching Roland Martin right now. Eee. Stay woke. Andrew Young has seen a whole lot in his 89 years on this earth. He shared a lot of that with me in our exclusive conversation here in Atlanta at the eighth annual Hope Global Forum. look, there are a lot of people who came out, civil rights movement, and it was about different different reasons. Everybody had their own reasons. And one of the things that I've always said about you and
5: appreciate well, let me, let your me, me, about me, connecting. Yeah, but let me let me just put it this way, see. I haven't come out of the Silver right No, 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 that's, not, that's not my point. <laughs> I mean, that that Martin's death in 1968, the last time we had a long conversation, he was in New York, and it was with Harry Belafonte, John Conyers, Dick Hatcher, and myself, sitting around in his suite after he had made a speech up at Saint, Cathedral of Saint John the Divine. In fact, I'm going there this Friday to do a memorial for Dave Dinkins. A Saturday. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was after that, and the whole conversation was, how do we get the energy of this movement into politics? We ought not have to have a thousand people get out in the street raising hell just to get a simple decision made. And the answer is that we need to get people elected to public office who come from this movement Mm -hmm. and who really will come to us. Who have that consciousness. And see what it is we need to do to keep the movement going. And of course, I'm not even prejudiced. I'm just a realist everything that's in this bill that They fussing about with Joe Biden and everybody That's the sort of thing that dr. King was talking about in 1968 before he was killed see there no reason why there isn't free college education in community colleges No reason why we don't have some kind of aid for children mm-hmm. regardless of their wealth or status uh, that a civilized nation should have universal health care mm-hmm. and Obama God bless him, got us that, and now we've got to fight to keep it right, but I mean, I'm still around, but I've been in the hospital off, you know, maybe three three times. But each time, it would have broken me mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for Medicare. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you made the point about those who have consciousness
3: who are in the movement, but who still have the consciousness, they're just simply in another different area. Yeah. That is the piece that uh, your relationships with corporate America, and when you, Delta and Coca-Cola and others, also the connection, that is, yeah. your deal is,
5: you, you, put it together. Well, well that's what, what Operation Hope is, is, is trying to do and that's, I mean, when we started SCLC in 1958, They adopted the slogan to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. Well, that's what this is about, Um, redeeming the soul of America from poverty. Mm -hmm. And homelessness is poverty, see? And in Atlanta, half of the people that are on the streets homeless are veterans. Mm. And that shouldn't be. Never. See, because...
3: Not with but, the billions we spend on defense in this country.
5: But the veterans coming back didn't get the personal care right. that they could have, or should have gotten. They didn't have the institutional connections. See, they, they joined in school, uh, you know, and, and they... Like, I, I always see this uh, uh, veteran's insurance, mm-hmm. see, and my brother gets it because he was a lieutenant in the Navy. And uh, I got put out of ROTC. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't for misbehavior. I broke my arm when I was four years old. Uh. And I can't turn my hand over because they said it without giving me any anesthesia. Oh. And my daddy said, look, these white folks are not gonna treat you right. But he rolled up his handkerchief and he said, bite down. He said, it's gonna hurt like hell, but it's not gonna hurt any less if you holler. He said, so s- s- let them fix it and take it like a man. Saying I'm poor. Well, I always thought of that as punishment, segregation but it kept me out of Korea. (laughs) You like, appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the Lord works in mysterious ways. That I've been kept here for some reason, Mm -hmm. see? And I just try to do the best I can to find out whatever, what is that reason today that I'm supposed to be here?
3: That's the thing that is, I had a young sister came up to me earlier, uh, I, and she said we were here a few years ago. We were, it was some, no, it was another event, and she she said I, I didn't feel as if I belonged. Why? Wow. And no, she just said I felt that, and she said you spoke to me, and you said no, you do, and I, and and she said something I told her, and I can't remember. Yeah. And she came to me, and she says I want you to know. That just, that completely altered. I've gone on to do this and this and this. She, she said, I wanted to tell you that. She said, because it just, I thought I didn't belong and you said, no, you do.
5: Yeah, that's exactly it. And And we all need somebody to tell us that. Not only do you belong here, but you belong here to do one, two, three, four, five. Right, right.
3: <laughs> well, that's what, cause she asked me, cause she, I told her, I said, you know, this. I told her, I said, when I, I said, when, I, when I launched this, people told me I was crazy. Show had gotten canceled at TV1. They're like, what do you, you watch? Go get a job, go to CNN, MSNBC. I said, no. I said, we need something that's black, that's ours, mm-hmm. that we control. And I don't have to ask somebody's permission to go cover. And I yeah. told her, I, I said, we started small, we had different cameras, we had smaller lights. I said, but we grew. I said, to have this footprint. I said, but the whole point is the mission has never changed. Yeah. That is, let's serve our people and give them information. Well, let
5: me yet. say something that I think we ought not let Brother Colin Powell go past without being celebrated. Oh,
3: I did a, yeah. uh, I did a whole hour and a half celebration Good. on the show, and we're gonna do another one, because, well,
5: to that point. But you know, when he came here, I was the mayor, mm-hmm. and he was the general in charge of Fort McPherson, mm-hmm. and I never paid much attention to Fort McPherson till I realized that this they had nine black generals out there at one time. Wow. And I said what are, what are they there for? Well, they were in charge of the entire United States armed forces in North and South America, Europe and Africa and the Middle East. Everything was run out of Atlanta. Mm. See, so, and he was in charge. And I never paid much attention, but he called me and said, you know, I, I really would think like you to go down to Fort Mag- Fort Benning. And uh, he said, we're graduating about 1,500 young officers, non-commissioned officers, sergeants. And he said, we got a sergeant school down there. We're training sergeants from all over the world he said I wish you would go down there and talk to him and lo and behold I did but uh they put me through just about everything I was younger then mm-hmm. and in much better shape I did everything but jump out of a a, <laughs> a parachute and I said no that's George Bush's thing <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm perfectly safe on the ground oh. <laughs> and uh but he saw himself as a part of this community see that's why i I read even though he was general
3: i read an article the other day and i kevin powell who's our frat brother and and i disagree with him in this he said he felt that colin powell did not embrace his blackness was not a part of us
5: he's full of shit.
3: And I and I I spread the argument he and I was like I'm like, Kevin, I disagree <laughs> with
5: you. No, he, he not, but he, he, look, this man knew who he was. You can't grow up in the Bronx and think you something else. See, and and he, well, I happen to have been on the committee that uh, got President Carter to appoint. Uh, Clifford Alexander as Mm -hmm. the Secretary of the Army Mm -hmm. and President Carter gave Clifford Alexander the suggestion that the command officers in the military ought to look just like the soldiers and he said when you start appointing generals he said we ought to have about the same percentage of black generals as we have black soldiers And he just made that uh, casual comment. Mm -hmm. And Cliff took it seriously. And they sent about 10 or 12 lists. And Cliff would look down the list and see how many black generals there were. And he'd send it back, not enough. Bob Brown told me he did that when he worked for Nixon. Yeah. And again,
3: when I interviewed Bob, and when I read Bob's book, it was one of those things that, and I, here's what I think the deal was. I think that a lot of people, because Colin Powell's a Republican, but I, you've known a lot of black Republicans like I did. Well, they we were, were brothers all, and
5: sisters. We were all black Republicans when I came to Georgia. Because it, Abra- it was the Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Republican, Lincoln Party. Republican Party. <laughs> the black and tan Republican Party was the name of it. Mm-hmm. And And here's the thing. It was Maynard Jackson's grandfather that said, we need you to run a voter registration drive down in Thomasville in Beechton. And I said, I'll be glad to to do that. And I I never thought it'd be any problem. Uh, And I had him coming down there to speak. And the Saturday before he was coming down to speak when we were starting to drive, I was driving from Albany, Georgia back to Thomasville through a little town called Doe Run, Georgia. And we I came around the curve, I had a little Nash Rambler. And it looked like they had a thousand folk hanging out at these stores in Doe Run, Georgia. And they all had their white sheets and their pointed hats. <laughs> and I said, Oh Lord, what have I gotten myself into? And I had between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 6 o'clock that night before they came to town to figure out what I was going to do. Now, My first thought was, I'm going to talk to them if they come mess with me. But I want my wife to sit in the uh, window with the rifle. (laughs) And she was a very religious woman. And a religious woman who could shoot. She could shoot. <laughs> she really could. In fact, we, uh, we on the way down there, we, we, we stopped somewhere. There was a shooting gallery. She had 19 out of 20 moving targets. You're
3: like, I'm good.
5: See? Yeah. <laughs> but, but she said, no, I can't. Uh, I can't point a gun at a human being. I said, baby, that's the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and she said, and you're a preacher. I said, what's that got to do with it? She said, everything. If you ever forget that under that sheet is the heart of a child of God, you need to quit preaching. I said, damn, Mama, what, where do you get all this from? Well, she had she had been to a little college in Indiana where she had studied New Testament nonviolence. And she, that was before I got to be committed to nonviolence. Right. And so I said, but look, this is a raggedy house. All they have to do is throw a firecrack up here, and we go up in smoke, and we all dead." And she said, so? I said, so? I said, we got a three-month baby, and you, uh, are you ready to die? She said, don't you preach about the cross and the resurrection? She said, if you're scared to die, you need to get into another business. I said, damn, woman. <laughs> Where do you get it? She said, "No, stop and pray and think." See, and that was really wise advice. Mm -hmm. Now, coincidentally, she came from the same little town in Alabama that Coretta Scott came from, Mm -hmm. Martin White, Martin Mm -hmm. King's wife, and her parents talked the same way. See, they burned Coretta's house down when she was 15. And her daddy made her pray to forgive the people who burned it down and not to hold any hatred in her heart. So mm. these were some interesting and unique black women. <laughs> and and Juanita Abernathy was from that same county. Wow. See, and so uh, the Lord had put a hook up together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it anyway, I picked up the phone and called the mayor. And he put me on the phone with the Sunnyland Packing Company and Flowers Bakery, the two largest employers in South Georgia. And both of them said, look, we don't want any race trouble down here. They have the right to vote. And sheriff, you need to see to it that nobody bothers them. But the Klan has the right to have their parade, but only in front of the county courthouse. And you can let them, keep them on the county courthouse block. Don't let them go through the black community. And and this was in 1956. Mm -hmm. And Eisenhower was running. And Eisenhower used to come down there to play golf and shoot quail. And most of my church members knew Eisenhower. So they told me I was voting Republican. And I said, why? And they said, because if he is elected, there are no white Republicans. We get to nominate the federal judges. Mm. See, these were not educated folk, but they were smart folk. Mm. See? And do you know that this was 1956? Well, 54 or 56. Mm-hmm. I got there in 54. And um, every single judge that we recommended to Eisenhower, we, we picked the smartest and the best white folk across the South. He appointed them all. And every case we won with Martin Luther King in the 60s, we want it in front of one of those Republican judges. See, that's why, I mean, I
3: cannot tell you how, for the last three years with the show, I, I keep saying connect the dots. I'm like, folks, I get frustration with policy, I get that. I said, but understand, politics is a 360 degree deal. I said, I can be ticked off with Biden on this, this, this. I said, but the judges that he is going to appoint will be far different than the Trump judges. And, 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 and when you sue, I said, who you think you you going in front of? The federal judge.
5: Yeah. But when you're indicted, see, I mean, uh, they threw the book at me. They tried to charge me with everything. Every time I made a decision as mayor, I got sued. See, because. If there are almost every contract, there are at least five people that are capable. Right. And I had to pick one. And I never picked them myself. We had processes right. that we went through. Get a system. But whenever there was a black person that won, I got sued. And they just assumed. And it, it meant that the black contractors, uh, I couldn't even go to the homes. Yeah. See, I, I, I couldn't. Because uh, you would get
3: single, oh, favoritism.
5: Yeah. Uh, he, he, so for eight years, you know, I was the mayor and the congressman before that. But uh, that's the price you pay. But it's But I keep telling the audience, you have to connect the
3: dots. You, you can't just say, Well if I don't get this one thing, I'm not gonna vote and I'm like, No, we're gonna fight for that one thing. I said, but we I said, but if we if if the person's not in power, I said, you get none of it. I said you get none of it.
5: you got mostly black folk looking at you, huh? But you don't know. Hmm? You I say you got mostly black folk looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't vote, one way or another, you're gonna get fucked. <laughs> I can't make it any plainer than that.
3: Well, that's what the show's called Unfiltered.
5: Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're fine. Yeah. See, that's all, all right. the difference. I don't have to bleep that, because yeah. I own it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's yeah. the deal. I mean, Ambassador, yeah. I, 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 I can't tell you how I, I argue with people and they, oh man, you a Democratic shield. I said, let me tell y'all something. I said, I've never identified as a Democrat or Republican.
5: I see. Well, I'm a Democrat. I've been both.
3: Right. It's for me, but, see, in New but, York, I, but I voted for both, but yeah. I never identified with a party.
5: No, mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 I've, I've...
3: But you saw, you've also run for office. You've, yeah, had, you've had, had to do that. Yeah. I've never had to no. mm-hmm. pick.
5: Uh, but see, even when I was the Democratic nominee and the Democratic congressman from Georgia, I couldn't get anything passed unless I got some republican support. Right. And Ed Brooke was a conservative republican we'll that in many ways. But he was but I would go see him before we had the conference committee with the house and the senate and I'd tell him what I needed. And he always found a way to deliver it. See, now, now he didn't tell me he didn't make any commitments. Right. See? but we got almost everything passed.
3: Uh, for the rest of you fraternities out there, that's what happened when two alpha men get together. <laughs> 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 he also he was he was a good brother. But that was the thing that, again, I think when people criticize Colin Powell, I kept saying, folks, yes, he worked for Bush, yes, he worked for Reagan. I said, but to your okay. point. If they're in the White House, you got to have somebody to talk to. You got to have somebody. I had Congressman Maxine Waters on, uh, talking about his passing, and she said, you know, she said, well, she went to him, blamed blamed him for getting Aristide out, and he said, no, he said Aristide can leave. where well, he was in hell somewhere, and she said, Roland, she said, well, I'm gonna get him out, and she said, I got a phone call. She said, and Powell helped with the visas and everything to get Aristide out, and she said, I thank them.
5: Paul did just about everything he could. It didn't make any difference to him whether he was a Democrat or Republican. Uh, He endorsed Obama before I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't endorse Obama because I thought Hillary might win. And I had known her since she was in college. Nice relationship. Yeah. And in fact, her roommate was my mother's godchild. That's Grant Hill's mother. Mm -hmm. And she's been very ill here lately, I Mm. understand. But, I mean, that was in the 50s, see, and uh, 60s. Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. You said something earlier. Uh, you talked about being 89 years old, and you said every day, I, why am I here, I still am doing something and putting in the work.
5: Exactly. I mean, I'm not here to rest. <laughs> you know, like the song says, I don't feel no way tired. Well, see, John is always messing yeah. with you. We always talk about you because
3: no. he's like, he's not. He's he 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 gonna be everywhere. That's how that's how our brother C T. Vivian was. Yep. and he'd be marching somewhere. He'd be moving. And uh, sis, I was talking to the Cicely Tyson's her book uh, literary agent, I had the same one. Yeah. And they said they said literally, yeah. literally. Up until she took her last breath,
5: yep. She was doing interviews. She was yep.
3: working. That's she right. was doing her thing. Well,
5: let me just say, I ain't here giving my last breath.
3: <laughs> right. No. 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 Right. Right. But a, but the point see, but but she, but when you say you're not, I'm not just going somewhere and sitting in the corner. Hey, you and still I'm, got and purpose. I'm, and I'm not
5: sleeping. I mean, you know, Dr. King used to talk about folks sleeping through a revolution. And there's too much going on now. You've got to stay awake. you got to, you got to put in 10 hours a day of work. See, at something. Right. See, because whether it's making phone calls or speeches or giving interviews, um, I mean, I, I, I've been blessed. And I've been through many dangers, toils and snares, and. I I made it through and never had a... Well, even when I got stomped and beat up by the Klan, the thing I remember was, I didn't even have a headache, (laughs) see? And I said, you know, damn, I I thought it was gonna be worse than this. (laughs) But you get beat up on one corner, and then they pull me out. And I went to the next corner. I said, no, we can't stop. We got to get through this. And then the white folks get scared of you. They said, that's a bad nigga. (laughs) I ain't bad. Like the old folks said, you know, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. (laughs) It was grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will see me home, see. And I, I remember marching through that mob of the Klan, and, and, and I, the only reason I went out front was there wasn't nothing there but lift women and children, and I didn't want them to get beat. Mm-hmm. So somebody said, when we kept coming, they said, them niggas got some nerve. <laughs> like, they, 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 they ain't going home? No, I said that. And one of her sisters said, it's not nerve, son. weedon has got faith, mm. see. We know that you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't need to fear evil, see, because God is with you. And folk believed that. And they didn't need to hate, and they didn't need to cuss. They felt sorry for these sick white folk. And you know what happened? That's what passed the the Civil Rights Bill. we were in St. Augustine just as the Civil Rights Bill was being argued in the Congress. And the Saturday before the vote, the Klan that had been beating us up for almost a month in various ways and couldn't get anybody to fight back, because if we'd gotten angry and bitter and fought back we had killed the cause Mm -hmm. and they decided we're gonna fix them niggas we're gonna come in their community (laughs) so they were walking marching they didn't come at night right they came in the daytime but they had on the sheets and everything and we knew they had the guns and everything under there but i didn't know what we were going to do when they hit that street coming through lincolnville Black folk were lined up on both sides of the street and they started singing, I love everybody. <laughs> I love everybody in my heart. You know, you can't make me doubt him because I know too much about him. That's why I love everybody in my heart. See, <laughs> I said, that niggas is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's God's children. You can't fuck with God's children.
3: <laughs> I got to ask you one last question. I know you run around here. And as you were talking, when you, and you were describing those songs, and and I've asked this question of, of a lot of people. Share with the audience what black love feels like. Now, love everybody, but I'm talking about when your people come up to you well. and they say, and when they embrace you, when they say, Ambassador, what you mean." What, what is? I know what it feels like when I get it, but for you, what does that black love feel like?
5: It feels like the people who come up to me, I know have been praying for me, whether they knew me or not. See, And I know that when I thank them for their prayers and their support, when I thank them for their support, I'm not thanking them for what they do. I'm thanking that they keep me connected to the almighty God, see, and that's how we got over. You know, song said, "My soul looks back and wonders how I made it over." See? and that's how. It's on the prayers of these old folks. That's right. But the reason I had to get beat was it was nothing but old folks and children that's marching right. behind me. That's right. The niggas were in the pool halls talking about being bad, and they couldn't be nonviolent. So I said, no, these white folks been fucking with you all your life, and you ain't slapped one of them yet. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're gonna try to tell me. I said, no, it's not that you can't be nonviolent. You can't be violent. You ain't shit, <laughs> see? And until you get some confidence in yourself and some faith in God and stand up and, and be a man, they gonna continue fucking with you, see? And now, uh, did you remember James Orange? Yes, never Jeez. met him, but oh, I've read. Yeah, James, James Orange was, James Orange cousin was the first black coach in the Southeastern Conference. He was black coach, he played football at Alabama, mm-hmm. but he was the first black coach and coached Mississippi State. Oh, um, um... Yeah. Sylvester. Sylvester Coombs. Yeah, Sylvester Coombs, yeah. Yeah. And, um... Crooms, Crooms. yes, Sylvester Crooms, yes. And and he, um... But James was bigger than him. Sylvester was a big brother. But James was bigger and just as bad, but they weren't recruiting folk from high schools in Birmingham then. And he went with Martin Luther King instead of playing football. Mm. But he would go in the bars, see, and quiet everybody down, and they'd quiet down. <laughs> <see>. <laughs> A big brother walked yeah. in and said, "Y'all need to chill out." Mm. They chill out. But I got another one like that that I don't know what's going to happen to him. But he's six four. He's 305 pounds and he's in his, he, he's been at Georgia Tech just one year, but he went for the summer and then the first semester. And somebody gave him a B. And he went to him and said, wait a minute. He said, "I don't make bees." <laughs> he said, "Look, he said, look at my high school record. I don't have any bees." He said, "Something's wrong. You you didn't take my paper, my, my work seriously." And he he made them go over his paper, and, and they gave him an A minus. <laughs> see, but when you find a brother that size, <laughs> see. And with that kind of brain, you know that uh, the Lord put him here for something special. That's right. And it's not necessarily football. That's right.
3: Well, that's why I tell people, when I'm wearing my Texas A&M stuff, folks ask, did you play football? And I'm like, no. (laughs) Like, we can go to an A&M and not play ball. Yeah. And people are like, why are you getting mad? I said, because, don't just look at me as an athlete. I said, we got the intellect. We got that. Well, Ambassador, look—it's always good to see you. And I got I, first of all, I gotta thank you, because in my whole career, when we call you, you answer the phone, you come on, you share with us. Uh, when my Angelo passed away, we actually called you and we, we told you it happened. Uh, and but you've always taken our calls. You've always had respect for black-owned media,
5: and, well, and as opposed to. Let me tell you. Nobody, you know, there was 60 houses bombed in Birmingham and it never got to Atlanta in the paper, 150 miles away. It wasn't until they had jets <laughs> and to Bob Johnson, uh, John Johnson, you know, Bob Johnson was jet man. Yes, the, the editor. Yes, the, yes, uh, yes. See, and John Johnson was old at all. Right. But Bob Johnson had been Martin's classmate. Mm. And I think they started with uh, the killing of the young fellow in Emmett Till, Emmett Till. Yeah. and that put Ebony and then Jet put us on the map. Yeah, and we couldn't have run the movement without the press. That's why I, I tell
3: black politicians today. I tell black CEOs others, I said, look, I know we look we love. I said, look, I spent six years at CNN. I said, look, I get it, New York Times, Washington Post. I said, but never ever leave our black owned media. I said because when they when I said when they don't take when they don't put you on, I said you got to be able yeah. to come home and, and for my people.
5: Well, congratulations for keeping on. Yes, sir. And. Uh, We appreciate your service. I appreciate it. We appreciate your service.
3: You keep giving them hell. All
5: right. No. I, I, I raised my share, of hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you still doing it.
3: <laughs> okay, all right. Ambassador Take, always good to see my frat brother, Andrew Young. All right, folks, when we come back from this break, we'll talk with the sister who is the first elected city treasurer of Chicago about how she's using her power to ensure African-Americans are getting our fair share when it comes to private equity uh, in pension funds. It's a conversation you do not want to miss. That is next, right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, On the Black Star Network, live from Atlanta.
2: Once upon a time there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. (laughs) But really? Who has time for that? Let's go. I'm myself. i She ordered herself a ladder with I'm Prime, on my... Prime one-day delivery, on my... and she was out of there. I
6: some girls looking back at it and a good girl in my break. Now,
2: her card, hairdressing empire is no killing
6: it. Is habit. And the
2: prince, well, who cares? Prime changes everything. I'm back
6: at it, and I'm myself.
7: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Godfrey, the funniest dude on the planet.
3: <laughs> I'm Israel Houghton. Apparently, the other message I did was not not fun enough, so this is fun. You are watching... Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. All right, folks, welcome back to Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Uh, We are here in Atlanta. Folks, uh, Melissa Conyers Irvin uh, is the city treasurer of Chicago, you may say. Okay, what's the big deal? Folks, uh, she oversees $6 billion when it comes to the city pension fund. And so she, we sat down and she made it clear that she's learned a whole lot uh, since she got the job. And what she's doing is using her power to let these private equity companies know, don't come in here thinking you white and right. You better have some diversity. And she is dropping the hammer and making it plain. Here's our conversation. All right, Melissa. Let's talk money. Uh, You're in a unique position, being the city treasurer of of Chicago. One of the things that uh, I have always talked about, whether I have been in Houston, Dallas, the six years I spent in Chicago, um, is that if we are not maximizing the taxpayer dollars to ensure that black-owned businesses are getting their fair share, it's not going to happen. uh, in uh the private sector as well. How are you making how are you using your position to ensure that happens in Chicago, which has this, which has the third largest concentration of black people outside of Africa uh behind Come New on. York and Atlanta.
6: So first of all, hi hi Roland.
3: <laughs> see we can get right to, to it.
6: I am telling I'm like hi Roland. Uh, we
3: get right to it. See, <laughs> we're on the, see we get we, we hit the high part of stuff. We get right to the money. <laughs> Hey, we get right to the
6: money. It's all about the money and it ain't a doggone thing funny. We hit, all right. get to the money. All right. So it is good to see you roll it. <laughs> Let me just tell you that I have, I would like to say that I grew up watching you early in the morning. Uh, <laughs> But um, it's, it's just good to be with you, especially at this great forum. So let's talk about it. City of Chicago third largest Municipality in, United, in the United States. You mentioned that I am in a unique position. Let's talk about the position first We and I was just saying earlier today you, No matter where you live in the United States, you pretty much have heard of a county treasurer mm-hmm. the one that collect tax revenue But you don't always hear about the role of the city treasurer and if there are city treasurers in municipalities you you typically do not hear about an elected city treasurer which makes sense that the city of Chicago being the third largest municipality would have an elected city treasurer someone not only that's fiscally responsible someone not only that's protecting taxpayers dollars managing and investing which I invest my portfolio is about nine billion dollars of what I invest of taxpayers dollars Mm But where the elected representative come in is that what can I do to help people, but not just make money, because to the individual resident, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. It's about changing lives. And so we always talk about, and this is something that I started since I took office in May of 2019, being the first elected, and by the way, from what we know of, I am the first elected city treasurer of Chicago. And so for me, it's very personal. I was telling um, the young man that works with you, I was born in Inglewood, raised on the west side, and even if you're not from Chicago, you've heard of Mm Inglewood, okay? And so I've always lived in underserved communities, understand what working families, what their struggles are. I was so excited to be the first in my family to go to college, went on to work in corporate America, but decided I wanted to work for my community. I say all of that to say, Which brings me to how can we help people, especially those in underserved communities? And it's very serious. You talk about black-owned businesses. I look at not only black-owned businesses, but also residents that just want to be able to purchase their own home. Mm -hmm. For me, my mission is building generational wealth. Mm -hmm. How do we help to do that? purchasing homes, helping entrepreneurs. And so there's a, a just a, a, a myriad of things that we can talk about today. But for me, as the treasurer, it is getting money in the hands of small business owners and residents that aspire to purchase homes. During the pandemic, which since I took office in May of 2019, most of my work has been during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. During the pandemic, we really wanted to help small business owners and I was so proud to commit up to $50 million to help small business owners. We were able to provide loans from from very little, very little interest rates to small business owners in Chicago and I was so proud that over 50% of the loans provided went to businesses on the south and west sides of Chicago. And even if you're not from Chicago, you know primarily what the makeup is for the south and west sides of Chicago.
3: See, the thing when I talk about elected officials, you have a considerable amount of leverage. And uh, I think uh, historical people have not properly used the leverage. You talk about that $9 billion, okay? And we have these conversations that are going on right now. And in fact, I believe, I think Crane's. Uh had a story just the other day, we are talking about the lack of diversity yes. in private equity.
6: Yes, oh yes. But
3: I keep reminding folks, private equity's money is coming largely from pension funds. Those pen oh I know the game. And so those pension funds are, lo- are made up of black and brown workers. And so we're having this debate up here with how can they diversify when it needs to be, no, 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 you're not gonna get our money let you diversify.
6: Can I talk about that Rolla? Yeah. Okay, so as the city treasurer of Chicago, not only am I responsible, I mean Rolla you just on my street, not only am I responsible for managing the nine billion dollar taxpayer portfolio, by the way you use the word leverage, that is my daily conversation. Leverage. Yeah, they because they want your money. And so what I say is, I have $9 billion acting on behalf of taxpayers. We have to leverage it. So I'm working to change behavior with the banks, with the brokerage firms that we work with within the treasurer's office. But while I'm changing behavior, on the other hand, I have to work with the residents to financially empower them to prepare them. Right. Right? For the change of behavior that we're doing with the banking institutions. But in addition to being the treasurer managing that portfolio, I also, and you didn't even know this, and you're just talking about pension funds, I also am the only elected official that is a trustee on the board for all four pension funds in Chicago. Municipal, laborers, police, and fire. And that, and, and that, that's total what? How much? About $8 billion. Right. And for the people
3: who are watching who don't understand, uh, it is pension funds that actually powers Wall Street. When you talk about what folks are investing in, private equity, all these people, that's where the money is coming from, and what we have seen is uh, Blueprint Capital. They're suing the state of New Jersey mm-hmm. uh, for that very reason. You've got companies like BlackRock and others that are that are pretty much uh, all white, uh, and they are controlling this. They're the ones that are driving Silicon Valley, driving the investment. And what I have long said, New York State, uh, uh, Carl McCall did this when he was in New York State. Mm-hmm. They made it clear: if you want our money, we want to see what black law firms are you using, what black. Uh, are you partnering with black private equity? Who are, who are on your boards of directors? And it's real simple, they're not going to change unless, unless you say, I ain't giving the money I'll, up, unless you change. I mean, that, and, and that's what I mean by how, how we have to leverage political power absolutely. that changes, because now what happens is you force them to change who they invest with, the makeup, now all of a sudden, create opportunities are being created.
6: So let me tell you this, oh my gosh, I'm getting excited. On the pension fund,
3: See, you, you don't get this excited talking about money.
6: Come on, you better know, Roland. On the pension fund, there is no organization that come, comes before the board. Knowing that I sit there, the word—and by the way, the word gets around fast. When you're talking about money, word gets around mm-hmm. fast. Because they need it. The word has gotten around that in the city of Chicago. If you want to do business with the pension fund in the city of Chicago, you need to know that there's a city treasurer that sits on the board that is going to not only ask you tough questions, but is going to be influential with the vote to determine if you will get that deal. So let me tell you what I've seen. I've only been there since May 2019. When I first started, I was floored. No one looked like me that Mm -hmm. came before the board. We're talking about millions of dollars in transactions when I tell residents, especially on the south and west sides of Chicago, the amount of money that we're transacting, I say you you haven't seen this type of money right. that I'm talking about, right? Easily $50 million, 25, I mean is, easily. Which is nothing. Easily uh, for a I mean, deal. Right. For one deal.
3: These, these are small for them, these, these are really small deals. And,
6: and, and I'm talking about that's one deal, right? They're building more and they're also working that if they get one pension fund, you better understand that they're going to try to go to others, yeah. right? We're helping their resume. So the Word has gotten so when I first got in office in May 2019, I was floored to see that people coming before the board not only not look like me, but then I started asking questions rolling questions rolling. I said, um, talk to me about the employee demographics of your organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then when they started to talk to me about it, I said, now I want to see your chart. Yeah. And I want to see senior C-suite. level,
3: senior uh, level, C suite. Cause I know they did. They probably gave you the numbers, which really were your low level position rolling, where most of the black folks are.
6: Roland? No 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 let me tell you what they had it as. A category of other. Uh-huh. Wait, so first
3: or, of all or diverse or
6: minority. Whereas why well, I keep telling people no 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 no, they specific, spell it out. I need to see black, black. Hispanic right. white. This is right. this is what I see and now. Don't throw the women in a minority. Come on go ahead. Okay. So now, after two years, the word has gotten around. Not only will I look at your employee chart, okay, and I'm looking for if there's other first of all, you only got two percent black. Right. And the two percent is another. What what well, what exactly is other? Do they sweep the floors? What do they do? Yep. Right? So now I'm looking at I want to know what is your percentage black, what is your percentage Hispanic, and then I also want to know what level Mm -hmm. of executives they are. So here's what's happening. The word has gotten around. I am so grateful. I always say that you are in a position for a reason. Leverage it to help the people. That's what you're elected to do. How can I hand over taxpayer? Most of the pension funds, by the way, are funded by taxpayers' dollars. Yes. How can I turn over taxpayers' dollars to organizations that do not respect the makeup of Chicago? How can I do that? I can't. Not how I was raised. And so we have those tough conversations. And so now we are at a point that even just two years in, and there's more to come, Roland, you're going to hear more. Organizations know for a fact when they come before the board, they are going to have to answer.
3: See, this is the thing that, um, that Reverend Jackson, well, first of all, you take it back further, when you go back to Operation Breadbasket, uh, which was Reverend Leon Sullivan, presented to Dr. King, Dr. Mm-hmm. King, they adopted it, put Reverend Jackson over it, uh, that created opportunities in the late 60s and the early 70s, which he's also been doing with a lot of these companies because that's when Rainbow Push was taken, when, when they were taking, when they were taking buying shares in companies, which then gave them an opportunity to go speak of shareholder there meetings. There you go. And so, what we now have is with these publicly traded companies. Now you got you got the whole push, like Enterprise and others in the '80s, to get black people on boards of directors. What I am now arguing right now is: Are those black people sitting on boards of directors? Are you personally benefiting, or are black people benefiting? Mm. So if you're not, if you're you're a black board member and so what you are doing in your position, Mm -hmm. if these black board members are not doing, they should be saying, uh, hold on, where's our money going? Not just the senior positions, but uh, what black law firms are we using? What black architectural firms are we using? Engineering firms, how much money are we we spend with black-owned media, not black-targeted media? See, this is the only way this system changes. And so, um, and and the thing, and I've spent a lot of time over the last decade, speeches all around the country, walking our people through. In fact, I was in Indianapolis uh, two years ago. This was prior to, uh, it was in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I asked, I said, how many of you, I said, stand up. It was more than 1,000 black people I said, stand up if you are or have been a public worker. 80% of the people who stood up. And what I told them and that blew the them truth. away. The largest, the largest collection of black wealth is actually in the hands of public workers. Mm-hmm. I said, so y'all know you're funding all these companies who will turn around screwing you because they don't want to even hire us. And they were sitting there and they were going, are you serious? I'm like, yes. I said, pension funds, Yes. They, those are the drivers of the economic engine in this country. And I said, which is making a whole bunch of white people really wealthy in private equity, and they're freezing us out. Of, of actually what's, what's
6: our money. So I now sit at the helm of that. And please know that in, 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 even as a board member, in some instances, I am the only black board member. Okay? Unfiltered. That's okay. So let's unfilter which is, which this. Which is still
3: a problem in itself because when you talk about pension funds, what is the makeup of the Of the, the
6: members, pe- right? See, that's what... Okay. But it's okay. We're unfiltered. Let's talk. What I like about where I'm at is that the conversation has even shifted with the board members. Just yesterday, and I had a pension fund meeting this morning, pension fund meeting yesterday on my way in. Just yesterday, conversation where my white fellow trustee, before I even had to say it, my white fellow trustee knows, right? Right. So let's ask Treasurer Conyers Irvin, what does she think about this organization that lack diversity and what we can do to hold them accountable. Roland, I can't make this up. I'm grateful that this is intentional conversation, Roland, that I wasn't embarrassed to have. I'm the only black person in the room, not only with the Board of Trustees, but also with the asset managers that's coming before us. And you better know this young lady born on the south side of Chicago, raised on the west side, is not afraid to step up to say it's not good enough. You can't come here and ask us for money and disrespect the makeup of this city and disrespect the people, the employees that work here, Mm -hmm. okay? And so things have changed. Things have changed tremendously. And when they come before us, diversity, equity and inclusion is the first topic of conversation. So before we start talking about money, We're talking about what are you doing. Now, let me go a step further. This is what I think. So first of all, there is about $69 trillion in the financial services industry, trillion. I tell my young black and brown men and women, this money you see on the streets, uh, that's nothing. Right. No, that's nothing compared to what's in the financial services. But guess what, Roland? They don't know that. Right.
3: That's what There's the you know one of my favorite phrases from um, uh, Hootlam, uh Lawrence Fishburne said, "When you don't know, you don't know." And if, and and but but that is that is you know the reason I created the platform, why well, I created Black Star Network, uh, is because it's like walking people through and educating them. Yes. But but the th- but, I'm, but I can't I can't even. I can't even tell you even this conversation that I've had with black elected officials across the
6: country. I know. And they don't know. And I know. I'm, and I'm sitting there going, what is wrong with you? Because it's a hidden secret. So they're, be- just, they're just voting and approving stuff and I'm like. So before I became the city treasurer, I didn't know all of this. First of all, I didn't even really know how in depth my relationship would be to this industry. And then when I became city treasurer, and then when I became the trustee of the pension funds, I'm like, wait, wait, hold on a second. We're talking about real money here, and we have influence on who gets this money. Yes. So here's what I wanna see. I want to see more black-owned asset managers right. that can position themselves to come before the board.
3: Okay, but here's, but here's the thing, though. Um, and I have a report somewhere in my, in, in my, uh, in my phone here. The report has already been done. Black and brown asset managers have outperformed their white counterparts. Definitely,
6: diversity but, pays
3: off. But they've been capped. They literally won't give them the higher deals. The only black, the only black, the only black asset firm that, was, that is at that scale is Robert Smith's Vista Partners. But there are others who are actually doing it. When, when Obama was president, and this is one of the criticisms I had of him, And I told his team to get over it. I had a meeting one year after he was in Treasury Department. Two African Americans, and they told me they said that black and brown firms outperformed the white firms in the management of TARP funds. My next question was, "Oh, does that mean the black and brown folks now get more money?" Everybody went silent. I said, "Hold up. Where I come from, if I outperform outperform you, it pays off. Then I should now be able to now manage more money." Folks went silent. I said. What the hell? I said we got a problem. I said this is the thing we're talking about. Uh, when you look at the federal, the federal pension fund, BlackRock controls nearly eighty percent of the federal mm-hmm. pension fund. The rules are written where they only ones who can actually apply, because because they basically write the RFP, and that's the other thing as well. Uh, I cover city hall. I cover county government, and I saw bureaucrats how they wrote the RFPs. I, I walked when I was in Chicago. I walked several Illinois legislator, legislators through it. I said, "You passing a bill don't mean nothing if you don't understand how the RFP process is being written, that purposely will exclude these firms." And so, I think a, a, so. A, a big piece of this is the education piece of the elected officials to say you need to what rec- well, we call a game recognized game, because you're voting on stuff. And you're just, oh, it looks great. It's like, no, 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 hold up. No, no, you can hold that vote
6: up. Now i asking the question behind the, que- behind the question. Let me be a one, the one that's a part of that. Because let me tell you, I have educated myself on the process. Right now in Chicago, what you're saying is that's happening federally is not happening in Chicago. And I'm proud to say that. With our RFP process, we are allowing for minority firms to have a leg up. Let me tell you how. If a minority firm applies, and by the way, we don't even have the same requirements for minority firms mm-hmm. as we do non-minority firms. Mm-hmm. We, we are welcoming them into the process in Chicago. So if they're listening, please know, we're welcoming them to Chicago. And then we're saying, if they apply, and let's say my investment consultant advises the board, hey, we have 40 people that applied, of the 40, two were minority-owned. Guess what I'm going to say? And for the finalization process, final, finalist process, two of them need to be interviewed. No, that, that's huge. Right. So, by, by so don't tell me about the number of years in existence. Right, right. Don't tell me about the assets under management that they manage. Bring them in so that I can interview them and allow them an opportunity to come yeah. before the pension fund and get this deal. Bob Johnson uh, said something and years ago he said when well, you're not in the
3: deal flow hmm you will never get the deal and that's the piece <clears throat> we've always been locked out of the deal flow and this is and the thing that the, so the, the leverage point that, that I have been yelling kicking and screaming for years is folks I said it's taxpayer funds. Oh, it is. So when you're talking about majority mm-hmm. uh black and brown cities, mm-hmm. I said now I said you know, I said now it changed the whole conversation. Because see, and, and they don't want us to deal with that. And so so this this is why for for the audience, because you know I guess some audience members who think well yeah, only this person I said, no no no, you don't understand. If you now expand the pool of asset management. Now you're expanding who those companies invest with. Now and you also holding those black and minority firms saying, no, 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 y'all don't don't try to play the same game as the white mm-hmm. firms where you wanna exclude us as well. So now all of a sudden if you're investing in black and brown companies, now all of a sudden they are we know who they are hiring. That's how capacity is built. But that 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 really is it's, it's, it's not understanding this financial system because they keep Again, which you know, Coretta Scott King said this. She said, "They killed my Martin." We start talking about the money. That was that was that was the peak. The piece of, No, when MLK started talking about the money. See, I, I've always said this. They don't. They got no problem. Truth be told, you can hear all this defund the police crap. They have no problem with us talking about mass incarceration. They're perfectly fine with us protesting policing. They're perfectly cool with us protesting voter suppression. But when we start dealing with the money hmm. that changes the conversation and that's the conversation that they have always been afraid of and we never had first second or third
6: but this is also why it is so important to elect people like us right so when I say like us what do I mean yeah
3: first okay of all, that doesn't mean black okay it's called a a, having a consciousness Com- because there are some black people who are also like I said, who are on, who on boards of directors, who are all about them.
6: Oh no, I, I got you. Okay. Electing people like us. In this role as treasurer, everyone is saying, We've never seen this before, right? People ask about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but no, no, no. We know what this treasurer is going to talk about. DEI,
3: I hate most DEI stuff anyway. Because the old. (laughs) Roller, you just saw No, I do. (laughs) Because, no, see, look, anybody read, first of all, read Ellis Coles' book, The Rage of a Privileged Class. Okay. Okay, Coles, C O S -S C. Got it. That book was about the group of black corporate executives who came about in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, who all hit the glass ceiling. The DEI position today is the old VP community affairs. See, the VP community affairs used to that was the Negro position. So whoever was the VP community affairs in nearly every corporation. That was an African-American. I see where you're going with this. So what they did was, so then it shifted, okay, then it shifted to, okay, then they started putting black folks in the HR position, even though most HR people don't actually hire. They push, they process paper.
6: Rolling? They don't hire. Rolling. They're not the hiring manager. They're not. Because, look, Mm -hmm. I have an HR person. Mm -hmm. I understand. I understand. She processed. I understand. Come on rolling. so the new
3: position are the DEI positions, which is why I keep telling the black people who keep getting these DEI jobs, what is your P&L responsibility? What is your budget? Or do you only have a secretary or an assistant and no budget? How much are you in control over?
6: Here's the key to that. Who's the sponsor of the DEI department. Let right. me l- let me say this. Do you report directly to the CEO? Do you want that's where I'm because DEI can be right. can be effective. Right. But my question is, who is the sponsor? So that means going back to like the pension funds, when I have the asset managers coming before me, and I t- we talk about DE&I, and my question is to the owner, and by the way, because this, these are owners of the firm. Yeah. Oh, when it comes to money, the owners will show up. You, oh, could, yes. you Okay, so the owners of the firms, they're coming before us, and my question to them is, what is your role in DE&I? And what I'm looking for is that you are the sponsor mm-hmm. as the owner, of this program, that's where you got to get it at. But where I was also going early, I want to say this, and I don't want to miss this before we close. Sixty-nine trillion dollars in the financial services industry. Minority and women own about one point three percent of that. Yes.
3: Now you now now you you take that. I said minority and women. Right. So now, if you pull, if you pull the women out is it's so
6: minuscule. It's it's point is it's no higher than 0.5. Minuscule. Of 69 trillion. 69 trillion. So, here's what I say. And I'm going to please know, I'm going to do my role and deal with what we have today, okay? But what I also have to do is change that makeup. Okay, yes. and so what I want to do is attract young black and brown men and women to this industry. That, by the way, they're not taught in school. Oh my gosh, it breaks my heart. They're not taught in school. Okay, hold on. First of all, that's not what school's
3: for. It's Roland. Nothing. No, that's that's to get a sheet of paper. Roland. So it's not you're not going to actually learn it there. I mean, I don't care. What, Roland. Look, what what you learn in media, that's going to last you about uh, two days. Because when you walk into my office, what they taught you Roll it's gonna be a wake-up call. Which is but, but which is why, again, it's the deal flow. If you are not in the professional organizations, if you're not if you're not having the internships, if you're not interacting, doing these things as freshmen, sophomores, juniors and seniors,
6: yes, you're walking out with a business degree, with a finance degree, but you can't get a job. So let's talk about that. <laughs> Okay, so I I spoke about the amount of money in the financial service industry. I also spoke about leveraging my role to introduce black and brown youth to this industry. So let me tell you what I've done. First time ever, and I would would encourage any elected official that has any type of influence with pension funds to do this. First time ever, what I did was say, okay, all these asset managers that has come before all four of the pension funds, guess what we're going to do? I'm going to bring the diverse candidates to you. I am going to have an open form. What you're saying is, I don't want to hear we can't find them. I got you. Because they they do tell me that, by the way. Uh, yeah. OK? So this is what I'm going to you're do. Like, OK, that's cool. I got them. So now I'm going to bring them to you. So guess what? If you are part of this process, and the next time you come before a pension fund, because guess what? Even if you hold our money now, you still have to come back before me, mm-hmm. whether that's for a checkup, whatever, re-up, whatever you want to call it, you have to come back. And so when you come back, I'm going to ask the question. Guess what? I held an open forum where I wanted you to introduce jobs to young people. Were you there? And guess what? I have a list. So don't tell me you can't find diverse candidates because I'm going to bring them to you. I'm going to do my part to help. There you go. Right? Because as the young man said last night, this is a partnership, not a patronage. Mm And I need you to partner with me to help change the makeup of this. And so guess what I say to this? It's not easy if you want to do work with the city of Chicago pension funds. You know why? Because things have changed. And what I am saying as a trustee on all of the Chicago pension funds, that I'm going to hold these asset managers accountable. And I'm going to do my part to help change the makeup of this industry. Of $69 trillion.
3: Keep giving them hell and, as we always say, stay unfiltered. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a bunch. Thank you, Roland. Fantastic conversation there uh, with the city treasurer of Chicago, Melissa Conyers Urban. Alright folks, we come back on Roller Martin Unfiltered, we'll talk with the young brother who is the co-CEO and founder of The Gathering Spot, uh, a private club here in Atlanta in D.C., and how he is trying to connect brothers and sisters to each other all over the country. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered, the Black Star Network, live from Atlanta.
0: saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language, and she really loves her grandson. Like, really loves.
4: Hi, this is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Bianco from Blackest. Hey, everybody, this is your man, Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. <laughs> One of the
3: hottest spots in Atlanta is The Gathering Spot. I talked with uh, the co-founder and CEO, Ryan Wilson, about uh, the company and what they're trying to do to connect African-Americans in a very unique way. Check this out. So, Ryan, how you doing, man?
8: I'm doing okay, how are
3: you? All good, so, I, so I've been at your spot. <laughs> you haven't been there when I've been at your spot. <laughs> I, I miss you uh, every time. so, tell folks who don't uh, understand exactly what The Gathering Spot is.
8: Gathering Spot formerly is a private membership club. There's really two ways to think about it. The first way is through space. We have event space, a restaurant and bar, and workspace. The business that I'm actually in is in the community business. We have a membership community now that is the largest in Atlanta, 21 to 89 creatives, entrepreneurs, folks working for the biggest companies in the world. My job every day is to connect people. And so that's what we actually do. And so we've we built uh, the first one here, but then have them across the country at this point. DC was so, the second one.
3: Okay, so you, you Atlanta, DC, where else?
8: LA is about to open.
3: Okay, and the thing, the thing that, first of all, again, for a lot of folks, I, I keep having this conversation: when you don't know, you don't know. And the reality is, there have been clubs like this yeah. for, for years, for sure. decades. We were not members. We couldn't. We couldn't be Absolutely. members. Absolutely. So, a place for not only for us. Uh, to be a member, to eat, to hang out, but also, yeah, when you need a space for meetings or yep, whatever, exactly. as opposed to going to a hotel, things along those
8: lines. Exactly. We're intentional at TGS. We have been since the very beginning, knowing that, yeah, we have not been a part of these spaces that have existed for a long time. These
3: city really? clubs. Yeah, least.
8: but stuff gets done in them, right? Like, you're watching the connections form if you go to these places, and that's where I really got started. I, I, I was looking around and saying, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not a part of any of these networks. We should, we should build one, and, and we have. I mean, at this point, you come to any gathering spot, you will find, to me, the best of what the city has to offer. There's a little bit of everybody there, whether it's for social purposes or for business purposes. The folks that you need to connect with are inside of the club.
3: And I'm sure you've had, uh, you've had to deal with folks who, yeah, you're the CEO, but I know it's some white folks who are actually behind this whole thing and own it. it. It's it is amazing to me yeah. how often even even I hear that man you, you ain't really black owned you 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 don't really you don't really control your show and I'm like what the hell are you talking about? Yeah.
8: it 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 for me has been very frustrating. We started the journey when I was 24 years old, and so to have those sort of comments come in early and often, a lot of times it was confusing because. There were times I wish that there was some sort of backer that folks didn't know about because I mean it, we went through the fr- process. I mean it was first round was three million dollars. It was tough. I mean we were told no 97 straight times. We started to count them, and to get across the the first finish line. I mean it took it took a lot to get there. So I encourage folks when when they have those sort of concerns, ask the question because what you'll find a lot of times is that what you think is happening is not the thing that's actually going on.
3: Well. But I, but I think it also speaks to um, th- this whole notion of us not believing that we can actually do it um, and I was just in LA doing some interviews and I was joking with Michael Ely and Laz Alonzo and others and we were talking about you know when you own yeah. when you control when yep. you and I said one of the things out I, I, we were talking I was like yeah I said, no, I, I didn't rent the lights. I own the lights. <laughs> I own the cameras. I own the switcher. I own the laptops. I own the backdrop. I own and and folks they look at you like
5: so. I'm yeah.
1: Like,
3: yes.
8: Yeah. I'm like yes, we we can do that. Yes, yeah. I, I think. I mean, it's hard to become something that you haven't seen before. So. We I think it's important and the work that you're doing and telling stories and making us have the opportunity to go and see stuff, right? That to me is the first step in defeating that that mentality. Past that though, we've gotta to continue to believe I went to Georgetown for undergrad. The thing that was fascinating to me there is that I would go into these rooms and it was almost like implicitly understood that like I wasn't supposed to do as well as right. the rest of my classmates. And then one day I looked, I looked around and said, well, my mother didn't send me up here to, to do this any less than right. anybody else. I've got to, I've got to compete. Once I, once I did, I found that I was as capable as anybody else. So speaking in that way, speaking with confidence uh, to folks, I mean, any business owner that I talk to, I talk about the biggest and best possible version of their idea. What is that? Right. I, don't settle for anything, anything um, less than it, because you're capable of, of achieving. To me, whatever it is, I don't think the ideas that we have as entrepreneurs specifically are random. I think that if you have it, there's a reason why you right. have it. So let's maximize it. The, the
3: but, but I do think it is a also it, it is a huge difference when you grow up and no, I, I'm supposed to be here. I mean, yeah, I was it, absolutely I was, uh, uh, Lamell McMorris. Um, my fraternity brother of mine, uh, he had a sports agency and they represented Cam Newton. So I was in Florida, had a speech with a massive winter storm on the east coast, travel was shut down. And uh, he said, hey, I'm flying to the NFC championship game. Uh, I got my plane. We're taking it. He said, yo, go, go to the game with me. I was like, all right. Because he was supposed to be going to New York after that for Susan Taylor's National Kids Mentoring Gala. Yep. I was supposed to speak there. So I said, cool. I, that's the only way I can fly out. So so here we are flying on this on this private plane. Before it, I'm waiting i the private terminal for him to show up. And so I'm sitting there. I'm the only African American there. Yep. And and I'm and I'm looking around, I'm looking around, and I'm seeing all these, I'm seeing these kids. I'm seeing these other planes yep. come in, take off, and I'm seeing all these young white kids. Yep. And I said, these white kids, I'm looking at three, four. Five and six and seven, they're going to grow up where flying private isn't normal.
8: Yeah. What you were Expect- saying was expectation, right? Like, and it's like, uh, yeah. so
3: they're like, whereas, let's be honest, we grew up, you in first class? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, yeah. And, and yep. that is a, and, and, yep. and I think that yep. when we talk, that's one of the things that we really have to, when we talk about expose but drill into the next generation's mind, I don't know, you belong. Absolutely. And you don't apologize. At all. For how you walk into the room. You walk in like I'm supposed to be uh, you in this room at this table.
8: You, We have to tell particularly younger people that every single setting that they're in, they can absolutely compete, right, again, what I witnessed my peers have was, it was confidence, it was an expectation of what was supposed oh, to happen. Someone told me, someone no, said, I yeah. wish
3: I had the confidence of a mediocre white man. White man,
8: yeah. No, and, and that's, that's, that is a <laughs> super, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's actually concerning sometimes when you're in some of these settings and you're like, you, really, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I, we, once, once our kids see it, they can absolutely start to understand, like, I can get in the game. Right, yeah. I, I, and the examples of that are in the things that we talk about all the time. When there when there is line of sight to a goal, we we over index and, and, and are at the top of whatever those industries yep. are. We just have to continue to to make sure that there are direct lines
3: that yeah. our community can see. You're in so you're in two cities you're going to a third one. Five years from now, what do you want the gathering spot to look like?
8: So again, we're in the community business, and we have communities in five other cities right now, New York, Chicago, Houston, Charlotte, and Detroit. And for for me, we'll eventually build physical locations in all of those places, but we'll continue the work. I mean, TGS at this point is as much an advocacy organization as it is anything else, and I continue to, to be impressed by just the connections that are, in, that are being formed in the club, At scale, I think that becomes really powerful, certainly from a black-owned business standpoint. We're gonna start to watch businesses start in one location and be able to scale because of the power of of the the network, because of the collective. So we're gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep building physical spots so that we can gather, Mm -hmm. but I'm gonna keep, more importantly, bringing people together, which is what I'm excited about.
3: All right, well, man, look, good luck with it. I appreciate you. Uh, it, 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 the space in Atlanta uh, is fantastic. Uh, like you. I said, we, we did the show from there the night. Uh, uh, Pastor Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won uh, the um, won the, um, uh, the runoff here in Georgia. Uh, and so uh, it, it was good to see folks. It was good to hang out Absolutely. Uh, and look forward to uh, going back. Absolutely. We'll see you at the next one. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, folks, we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I moderated a panel here at the 8th Annual Hope Global Forum about what should be done in the C suite to ensure diversity. It's a conversation that was full of fire and funk, that is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
2: That spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Ooh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger. That's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey.
0: Really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision, an SUV built around you. All of you.
2: Once upon a time, there lived a princess with really long hair who was waiting for a prince to come save her. But <laughs> really? Who has time for that? Let's go. I'm myself. I'm she ordered herself a ladder with Prime one-day delivery, myself. and she was out of there.
6: I'm with some girls back at it and a good girl in my text Now, her
2: hairdressing <laughs> empire is She's killing no it. Is a bad habit. And the prince, well, who cares? Be back, be like Prime changes
0: everything.
6: Left, it,
0: my... Hey, yo, peace world. What's going on? It's the love king of R&B, Raheem Devon. Hey, I'm Cupid, Omega the Cupid shuffle and the wham dance.
6: What's going on? This is Tobias Trevino. And if you're ready, you are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin
3: unfiltered. When it comes to corporate America, a lot of power is held in the C suite where a few African Americans are. This week at the 8th Annual Hope Global Forum, I sat down with Chris Womack, who is the CEO of Georgia Power, as well as Don Cravens with the National Urban League, and we talked about what must be done to advance equity, power, and inclusion in C-suites. All right, so glad we're here. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, they have given us, uh, hey, y'all got to change the clock. Y'all have got seven minutes of please wrap up. Damn, we just said down. <laughs> Like grand opening, grand closing, all right. <laughs> Hello get, and goodbye. Yeah, let's, let's get right to it. Um, I think they sent y'all some prepared questions. I won't be asking any of them, so don't worry about whatever they sent y'all. <laughs> we, uh, knew it, we knew that. We actually knew that. I don't, I don't read from those. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we talk about the power of the C-suite, and uh, one of the issues that, that I have is that you have numerous folks, you've had generations fighting for African-Americans to be on boards, uh, to be CEOs, to be executives, to be in senior leaders. Um, but we're still dealing with some of our folk who are only benefiting themselves and not the collective.
9: Right. Right. How
3: do we effectively challenge them to say, you're not sitting in those positions just for you. It's about expanding the opportunities
0: for all.
9: No, and I look at it this way here at Georgia Power, part of Southern Company, the responsibility is we've got a bunch of stakeholders and they're all bigger than me, bigger than individuals, whether it's customers, uh, whether it's employees, whether it's investors, uh, but also there's a community out there that is looking for us to provide value and benefit uh, to them as well. And so I think if you look at it the right way, you're gonna say, this is not just about me, but this is, I've got a platform to do something to help somebody, to help a community. How do I use my creativity, how I use, use this company uh, to make investments, to leverage, to collaborate, uh, to, make, uh, to help p- make people's lives better? And I, so David Thomas was just here from Morehouse. And so years, years or so ago, we made a commitment of $50 million to historically black colleges and universities coming out of a conversation that I had with one of our board members, a guy named David Grain, who had facilitated a conversation in Silicon Valley about the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley. And so we're saying, let's address that, let's fix that by helping David and other HBCUs enhance their curriculum to help students understand data analytics, to understand coding, and other technical fields so they can go work in Silicon Valley companies. So that's some of the stuff I think is part of the mindset and the philosophy that we must have as we assume these roles of leadership. Dom, but
3: for, for me, I believe it has to be 360 degree. What I mean by, mean by that is um, there are a lot of companies who want the applause. So, oh, we have the scholarships or we fund this initiative with the Urban League or the NAACP. Whereas I'm saying, no, 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 no. I want to know what is your spending on black-owned media? Black law firms, black engineering firms, black accounting firms, black publicists, black transportation companies who are using car service, black catering companies, black event planners, black audio software. It has to be a much broader conversation because we are long past being happy to see an African American in the C-suite. No. How are you delivering in a 360-degree way?
7: Brother Martin, I said this. At the Urban League, just after the the murder of George Floyd, what we have seen is that many corporate citizens had an inflection point. Some of them are people who have given money to the Urban League and organizations like the Urban League for generations. And to those people, we've said, thank you, we will continue to do the good work. Some, it was was an awakening for them. And all of a sudden, they came to us and said, we want, to, we want to do more to help the Urban League. What I've said to those companies is, I hope that it's not a flash in the pan, a one time giving. I hope that it is the end to corporate philanthropic redlining, because that's what it has been. Organizations like the Urban League and others, we've been trying to do this work for many, many years. We have been asking for diversity on the C-suite level for many, many years. And some of that has been met with no, and just pure racism and, 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 and get out of our face. Some of it has been met with, well, here's some money, go do something good in your community. But we're not going to tell you how many Blacks we have on staff. We're not going to tell you how many Black businesses we do business with. And what we are saying to them, and what I am saying to them is, one without the other is not good enough. It's how we've gotten to this point in our nation's history. We, to your point, we can't just count on Black folks to fix Black folks' problems. And that's what this this philanthropy, in some regards, and and look, I appreciate the corporate giving that we get from many of our corporate partners. And Georgia Power supports our urban leagues here. We're going to do what we can with the resources we can. But we need more resources, and we need to know that the people in those companies look like us, sound like us. And you asked a question to Brother Womack, and I just, I want to answer it. I served some time in corporate America. You brought up, Brother Martin, about the the some of us in corporate America don't look out, don't look out for some of us. And you're very, you're very correct about that. What I'll say about that is corporate America even has a culture that does breed this feeling as an African American, it's got to be just me. right? And then what I have experienced in corporate America, and I'll just say it, is people who look like us were sometimes the people who I had to look, look, look out for. Oh I, oh,
3: I can tell you in the, in the conversations that we've had uh, when it comes to getting advertising, the first person in some conversations go, Roland, you controversial," is the black folks. I'm like, I need you to shut the hell up, because <laughs> y'all ain't got a problem spending money on MSNBC and Fox News. Are you calling them controversial? No, I'm just being honest. And so, see that that this is, it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of us because what happens is we say, well. We don't really want to, we don't want to criticize somebody. And, Chris, you, I know you felt it, but here's the deal. If, if, I, if I'm in your position, you, you should be saying, no, no, no. Challenge me yeah, no, to I... do what's right. Don't just sit here and say, well, I don't want to say nothing about the... Look, I had a lot of people, look, yeah. Obama got mad at me
9: yeah.
3: when he was the president. Yeah. And I told, I told him and his people, I said, uh, y'all thought I was joking before the election, huh? I said no. There's a return on investment, and if if you want somebody to carry your water, there's, there's gonna be some expectation when you get in to use your power for good. I said now, if I criticize the previous 43, you damn right I'm gonna criticize 44. Now I ignore 45, <laughs> but I'm gonna jam up 46. <laughs> but
9: but that really has to be our position. No, and it, and it does. And you have to hold us accountable. Yeah, we gotta hold ourselves accountable. I mean, I've got to make sure that. I'm saying when I move on from where I am, I'm helping other people grow and develop. I'm making sure that I identify opportunities for black folks to do business for the company. And yeah, I've got to make sure I do that. And you and others have got to say, well, Mac, what have you done? And yeah, I feel good about what we have done, but I've got to continue to do more.
7: Roland, let's put the blame to where it belongs, not on the one or two brothers and sisters who were the lucky ones. One percent of the Fortune 500 have a black CEO. One percent. We are 13% of the population, it's 2021, we've had an African-American president, but yet we still can't run the titans of this, this country. We are expected to participate as Americans. We are told all the time, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps, black folks. And yet when you look at the participation on the C-suite, the boards of directors of these companies are in the positions of CEO, those doors have been closed to us. And they're not opening, if you look at the bitch. The bench, who becomes a CEO typically at a company? It's the person who runs the, the profits and losses, the CFOs, the chief operating officers. If you look at those positions, gentlemen, those positions are largely white men. They're not women. We do the human resources. We're we are hired to do diversity, equity, inclusion. By and large, those are not the positions that rise to become right. CEOs of the company. So if you even look at the benches that these companies are creating we're not even on the bench, Roman. But, but this is,
3: yeah. but this is also again. You're absolutely right in terms of where you place it, but the, but I'm still going to challenge even our own when they do get in positions of power, because if a, it, remember when when uh, Bryant Gumbel interviewed Mike Tomlin about the lack of black head coaches. Mm-hmm. And Mike Tomlin was commenting. And so Shannon Sharp blasted Mike Tomlin saying, wait a minute, Mike, you've been an NFL head coach for 14 years and you've never hired a black coordinator. So it's also when you do get in, how do you open the door to say, no, 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 I'm going to create my own coaching tree, my own executive tree. And that's also sort sort of how I think how we have to challenge folks that when you get in, are you expanding the opportunities, Agreed. Uh, identifying the people, because to your point, look, you're not going to be there forever, no. but you want to be able to have a coaching tree yeah, or an executive tree no, that comes behind you.
9: No, Absolutely. And, and, and we get in the position, I can't not say, okay, well, I can't talk about diversity. I can't talk about race issues. I got to still be the champion. I mean, I've got to be one leading the charge and making sure that I'm developing the bench making sure that whether well, it's the finance, organizational operations, it is full of people of color, of diverse people in, in all parts of the business. So there is a succession plan, succession tree available to fill this, fill this seat. And so I mean, that's what we have to do. I mean, everybody's got to hold us accountable, our employees, our community. Uh, I mean, if, and if we do that, we'll get there. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of good conversations that, that are taking place today. And I do think we have an opportunity to do things that we've never done before and to really make some changes that otherwise would not have happened. But we've got to hold ourselves accountable. We've got to stay to it. It's a long journey, and we've got to stay committed. And, and I think we can get it done.
3: John, you mentioned George Floyd. And there were a lot of people, uh, there are a lot of companies, some here, that made announcements, that made pronouncements, yeah. that issued press releases, that people applauded. I've said to folk, I'm not giving you credit for a press release. And you shouldn't. I'm going to give you credit when you deliver on what you put in the press release. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that's also, I think, what has to happen. And, and, and I know, I'm sure our frat brother Mark was a little uncomfortable. I had him, I had him on the show and I talked about, I talked about Pepsi. And, I just, and I'm not picking on Pepsi, I'm just using an example because I think we also have to be thinking differently when we're having these conversations. So Pepsi has a 10-year, 5-year commitment with the International Urban League to stand-up black businesses, fully support, $10 million. They have an initiative where they want to drive $100 million over five years to black-owned restaurants. But Pepsi spends about $3 billion a year in marketing. If Pepsi committed 5% of its marketing dollars to black-owned media, that would be $150 million a year, $750 million over five years. $10 million to the Urban League over five years, $100 million they want to drive in receipts to black-owned restaurants, but $750 million go to black-owned businesses over a five-year period, that's the number. And I think we have to be making a level of demands of companies that are different. And that's why I'm saying we have to be far more specific in that we appreciate the support of civil rights organizations, but the real flow of resources is when it comes to the companies and that's the demand and we be, must be that specific with every single company whether you're Wells Fargo whether you're Bank of America whether you're City whether you are in, in whatever industry because again philanthropic support is one thing right but standing up and supporting and investing in black owned and minority business is a completely different thing
9: absolutely but you and rolling you, you make an excellent point uh, after May twenty-fifth, George Floyd's death, and I think it was the BET Awards. If you go back and look at some of the ads and some of, I mean, it was some great. Oh no,
3: no, no! Do you, you need them? Because I wrote them all down. Okay,
9: but it was because <laughs> I. It, I, it, it was um, on Instagram.
3: It, every single one of. It, them. Go it ahead. was
9: some phenomenal creative work that was done.
3: Y'all think I'm lying? Keep going.
9: And so, I do think, and whether it's press releases or whether it was wonderful creative, yeah, we got to hold ourselves accountable for. What did we do after that? I mean, No, 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 I, mean, well, no I, want to, I want you
3: to put a pin in that, because here's the deal. Because again, this is where the game comes in. They hired black and minority creatives to produce the spots and paid them. What I said is, no, 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 yeah. but are you also running ads on Black owned Media? So what happens is yeah. they want us to be happy. No, 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 but we hired some black creatives. I'm saying, no, 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 we want that, yeah, po- I mean, that pot, and that pot,
9: yeah, and and so and, and that's that's one of the conversations I know that we have internal. What are we doing the, doing today? I mean, not just what we did in June or July of 2020, but are we are we still on this journey? What progress? I mean, what advancements? What causes are we continuing to invest in uh, that we talked about back in in May and June of 2020? And I think that's something we got to all hold ourselves accountable to as companies.
3: Roland, what? what see, this, see, Don, this is business. Mm-hmm. We're not talking a handout conversation. No, that's no. right. We're saying there are actual businesses, and, 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 and I need people to understand when we talk about businesses, specifically African-American, prior to COVID, yep. with 2.6 million black-owned businesses in America, 2.5 million had one employee, doing an average revenue of $54,000. That's right. So the problem is we really only have 100,000 black-owned businesses
7: right that have employees that have capacity to really they have more
3: than one employee That's right. So we don't even you can't break down. How many of them have two or three right when I launched my show Three years ago the day I launched I was in the top five percentile of black-owned business employees So going from launching the business going from that to three million dollars a year three years later I am actually doing better than 95% of all black-owned businesses in America. That's in three years, right? Right, that's crazy so it's a capacity conversation that has to happen. And companies, when we talk about c suite we talk about who you're doing business with, the challenge has to be there. And then we talk about whole accountability. No, no. What is it this year? What is it next year? Yeah. Then what's the benchmark the following year? As opposed to, hey, we got a diversity award of being a great place for minorities to work.
7: That's
9: right. But, you, but, but we can't live on accolades. Because okay. we can't deposit awards. And, and, and so that's my thing. I mean, yeah, give me an award. I'll, I'll take a photo with it. But I can't, I can't stand yeah, all I, that. Yeah, I, I ain't never deposited a selfie. Okay, No, so I, we, we can't live on accolades. And so all the work we're doing, one of the things we're going to do is at the end of the year, we're going to do what I call the transformation report that will, that will highlight everything that we're doing. And I'm going to benchmark ourselves against other companies to say, okay, am I good, bad, or indifferent? And where is it I can get better? And I'm going to do that every year. Every year we're going to do a transformation. We're going to grade ourselves. That's right. And I'm going to have somebody come in and audit to say, how well are we doing? I think think that's the way we get better. That's right. But Rowling, you're
7: making the case for this panel. The reason why things are the way they are is because we don't have people who grew up like we did, know people that we know, go to church where we go, know that black businesses are very small businesses. And so if those people don't live in the, don't work in the businesses, they don't, they don't sit in the C-suite, they don't have a chairman and CEO like this gentleman, they just don't know. So a lot of that conversation, that frustration that I hear in your voice, we feel it, we live it, is that PTSD of being a black American until we diversify the C-suite. We're really speaking in a vacuum. And, that, and, that's, and so that is the reason for this panel today is you're right. You bring up. We can have both. We can have philanthropic, but we need supplier diversity. We, but if no one in that room understands anything you and I are talking about today, or Chris is talking about today, it doesn't happen.
3: Well, and and and, and the thing is, one of the things that we are, and, and I get it. I understand. We're we're afraid to. A lot of us afraid to call folks out, to challenge folks. Uh, Martin Depp has a great book about Operation Breadbasket 1966-1971 that created the opportunities for many African-American businesses in Chicago. Uh, that was one, really one of the lasting things of Dr. King, and the idea came from Reverend Leon Sullivan. And I, I had a, a, a friend, he said, you know, Roland, you know, it, it, do, do you have to be so aggressive in calling companies out? Yes. And I had a friend, another friend, who said, well, can you do this quietly? I said, show me how that's done, worked for me so far. See, at, at some point, you have to get some people's attention by alerting their customer base, who's not doing business with us. And if anybody say that's not me, all you should do is go to April 3rd, 1968, and listen to Dr. King's speech from, from Mason Temple in Memphis, where he specifically said, In the speech, Jesse, what do you call it? Redistribute the pain. And what has to happen is, and I'm not saying this requires launching massive boycotts of companies, I'm saying we can knock one, two, or three points off your market share, and some folks probably will then lose their job. Because at some point, and see, I'm not, and I, I get that things take time. Here's the deal, I'm not interested in waiting. I'm 52, okay? We don't know how long we all got. I'm not interested in a 30-year conversation.
9: Yeah.
3: No. I want to know, change it in three, two, one. Capacity is here. Opportunity is here. you got to have folks who are simply willing to do it. And I think we're going to be a lot more aggressive in making that demand.
9: Yeah. yeah. No, you do. And, 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 and make the ask. Don't, don't be afraid to make the ask. I mean, don't be afraid to have the conversation and and not and, the small ask and and not the small ask i mean the big ask yeah okay if i mean you maybe say I, the big ass yes yeah. said the big, big ass <laughs> no i didn't want to say that because we are you know we we're being recorded But <laughs> well, you are going to say the big big ass ass no i, I did. said it go no, ahead no but you cuz i have no problem asking for no, all but, of the money but 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 make the ask and and engage in the dialogue i mean I, I mean i do think and i understand exactly what you're saying i do think companies now are in fact more sensitive than they ever have been to these issues. Yes, we got to keep the conversations going. We got to make the ask. We got to follow up to see what has been done.
7: Apply pressure Apply when necessary. Apply pressure yep, when absolutely.
9: necessary. I mean, because, yeah, I, I do think things are different now. And, and the thing I say to our company, and I say to all of us, we have this wonderful moment in time.
7: That's right. Really, we, you we up have,
9: we have this wonderful moment. We can't let it pass.
7: And so, we can't
3: let it go by. But on, but on the moment, Reverend Barber has been calling it this year, and and, and I've been with him as well, this literally is the third Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And both the previous two Reconstructions, they were about changing laws with civil rights, but the one area where they failed was economics. economics. yeah. This has to be now an is the time. economic yes. change. Topic.
7: Now is the time. Yes. You know what, when, when uh, you, you and I in the same age group Roland, when, when we saw George Floyd and we had to explain to our children, to our teenage, and I've got a, two 20-year-olds, what we put up with in our generations, our children are not willing to put up with that stuff anymore. And you're right about it has to stop now. There is no more time to wait. My children kept asking me why. And I had no responses to the why, other than that's just the way it's always been. Yep. And I started to even feel like a deficient parent, right. as a deficient black man. When I had to look my children in the face, and they say, but why does it have to be that way? We know better, we're better than we've ever been, we're more educated than we've ever been, we've been through this before, Daddy, yep. why? And so to your point, Roland, we, we can't wait anymore.
9: It doesn't have to be that way.
3: And I think that in what we're seeing, and I'll be honest, the reason I think you saw the corporate response, yep. Was it wasn't because black folks were protesting. They saw a lot of white folks protesting. And they were like, oh, hell no!" Because if, if, again, if you study history, in the period after the Civil War, poor whites and freed slaves began to make substantive changes Absolutely. across the South. Dr. King mentioned that in his speech in Montgomery after the Selma Montgomery March. Yep. And he talked about that. And you had what they called the Bourbon class that said, oh, we cannot have this happening. That's what we saw. But the challenge for white allies has to be, don't just show up to the George Floyd protests for two or three weeks. Where are you a year later when they haven't passed the bill in Congress? That has to continue, and it has to be continuous inside the companies as well, if we're gonna see the kind of change in C-suites as well as when it comes to the companies. Final comment.
9: No, that, now is the time, and, and to your point, we also have to make sure that our white friends of, of goodwill not let them be silent okay as as the philosopher franz fenon would say silence is dishonesty we cannot let them be silent now is the time let's not miss this opportunity
6: we
7: need to educate our young people that working in corporate america is not a bad thing either as well, though. We need brothers and sisters in corporate America. We need our next titans, our next CEOs, CFOs, chief operating officers in corporate America to be our young people, to be us. And so let's educate our young people to go be good corporate citizens uh, in corporate America so we can change some of these systems you talked about, Brother Martin. My
3: final comment is real simple, and that is uh, I've started every job with the premise, I'm going to get fired anyway. (laughs) Just a a matter of time. So you you can be the model employee who shows up work early who go, stays late and then when you get laid off now you're at home and you're mad as hell because you like damn it I did everything right and I, I don't have a job whereas me I'm gonna say what the hell I need to say while I'm there and if y'all get rid of me I'm at home going hell I said everything I need to say while I was there. <laughs> there are some people who are parking lot militants and there are some people who use their voice on the inside of the company. Yes. I dare say, and we all have different styles, but very simple. If you are in a company and you have left no footprints or no fingerprints, you have wasted a career. No question. This is the opportunity for us to literally redefine America in the way in the image that it should be, because we are not going back to the country that we used to be. That's right. We are it's not happening. It's simply not. not And so either we make the shift now and we change what is happening, or we're going to have a bigger problem uh, in the future. And that means supporting and investing in, yes, those companies, folks with black-owned media who are willing to tell a story, and also stop using the buzzwords that we all know, who you're afraid of, who's not the right type of person, because the reality is you sometimes need that strong voice that doesn't give a damn, who's willing to change the system. Uh, Boo, I see you waving in the back. We good. Thank you very much. Uh, we are out of time. Hope y'all enjoy this conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank
3: you. She's the CEO of Top PR companies. We come back on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. The conversation between John Hope Ryan and Lisa Osborne Ross, the CEO of Edelman PR.
0: Saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Merrier. Food is her love language, and she really loves her grandson. Like really loves.
10: Hey everybody, it's your girl and So what's up? This is your boy Earthquake. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. <laughs>
3: All right, folks, this week, I was supposed to moderate the conversation with Edelman PR uh, CEO Lisa Osborne Ross, the first African-American to lead this major company. But I was busy with other interviews. And so John Bryant, step right in. And folks, it is a conversation that you do not want to miss. She was straight. No chaser.
4: I'm constantly amazed when we do this, these interviews, and my heart is just so full. You expect nothing wrong with it, all good. You expect a male, 60-year-old, Caucasian walking out in these rows. And it's just, this is, only happens in America. I mean, I, I, I love the world. I, I've been all over the world. I would never be who I am if I was in France. I'm not sure in Germany or Japan. <laughs> we, would, we would not have the opportunities to have our full strengths acknowledged. And clearly, I can look at you in your eyes and see you're not letting anybody not acknowledge your full strength. <laughs> you're, you're completely transparent. In, in two minutes, I read you as, a, as somebody who's reasonably comfortable in your own skin. You. And you're the first CEO, female black, in this role ever, right?
10: Absolutely, yes.
4: <laughs> so normally, normally, I would take time to unpack. I don't think I need to do that with you. I want, you, I want you to have a relationship with this global audience and I, and I want them not just to know who you are as a person, but I think the they're best informed about you through what you do. The data that you have is unbelievable.
10: I could not be more happy, more proud, um, more full, as you have said, to be here. I have watched this conference. You all have had a parade of all of our clients on this stage. And for me to be able to talk about what is critically important, something that Thelma and Daniel Osborne taught me too many years ago for me to say publicly, uh, that um, money matters. Yep. And our ability to make it, to keep it, to share it, and to pass it down is the only way that we as a people, because that's my first identity as a black woman, but we as business people, but we as a nation will ever survive, is if everybody can participate in this American dream, and that is rooted in money. So, Amen. I have the pleasure of um, working at Edelman, which is a global communications firm. And we do brands. And we believe that brands should follow their purpose. And we believe that purpose and profitability go hand in hand.
2: Mm.
10: And after the murder of George Floyd, our clients fell into probably three or four different categories. One, those who were already doing it and then went for it.
4: No, 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 hold, hold on, wait a minute. No, no, no. See, she's so serious, she's, she, she's, she's like a corporate killer, like she's going right, <laughs> right in, like you, you, you are no joke. I, I want people, before you get there, I know you, you, you got this. When I looked at you in the back, I saw your mother, I saw your father, I saw your, I saw your, your ancestors, that reasonable comfort in your own skin, which is very rare, that self-esteem and that confidence. The confidence is clear. You're competent, that's why you're in this role. But the self-esteem, black women in this audience, white women in this audience, Asian women in this audience, they need to know, Indian women, women and people of color need to know not just what you do, but how you did it. Where does this self-esteem, just spend two minutes on it, where does this self-esteem come from?
10: You know, my mother and father. Where do all good things come from? And, and my God. And yep. I'm very comfortable talking about my faith um, as a corporate leader. You know, my parents raised us to believe that, um, and you talked about this earlier, not only can you, but you must do well and do good at the same time. That's right. And so I am very clear, so you talk about women in my position, when I am asked, um, you know, how did you get this role? What do you do? And I say, I'm not scared of money. Mm. I'm comfortable with money. Say that again. <laughs> I, I like money. And I want everyone to have that comfort level. Yep. And for women who are in the positions that we are in, you have to be able to manage the money. You have to be able to make the money. And you have to, in a position like mine, talk to your clients about how to do the same thing so it again this is a gift i we weren't even so this is gifted because you weren't even supposed to be doing my interview right and we saw each other in the back and we were like all right let's do this <laughs> and so um but i do want to talk about this research and i want to talk about the things that we've learned um and the things that we're going to do as a result of yep. so one uh, our clients like everybody else were like what can i do And we were like, put money into the community, advance agendas, recognize, particularly in financial institutions, that there is systemic bias and racism in financial institutions. Straight up. It just is. And I don't subscribe to unintentional bias, I just don't believe it. I think it's the way that we let people off the hook. You know exactly what you're doing when you're doing it. And until you are held accountable, um, you will continue to do it. So, our research found one affirmation of a hypothesis. Mm. If you were thinking that there was systemic racism, I'm here to tell you that it is. And it's in every level and in every institution, everywhere. First finding. Second finding, did that come out? It's fine. But you can still hear me. Um, Second finding is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you are like our good soldier, Colin Powell, Mm. who had some money, or if you were like cousin Tommy, who probably also has some money, but um, you are treated the same when you interact with the financial institution. So it doesn't matter whether you have money or not. Mm. You and your white coworker at the same time are looking at, I think I will refinance my house because the rates are so low. And then Tuesday, your white co-worker's like, I'm good, I'm done. And you're like, well, damn, they haven't even called me back. Mm. And when they do talk to me, why are they asking me a series of questions that they're not asking you? Mm. And, and why do they keep asking me the same questions over and over again? And you've gone on and bought your second property, and I got more money than you do, but they're still testing me and questioning me. So second finding, regardless of your income, it's, a, it's an issue. The third one, and this is the travesty for me, because we know how to make money, right? right? First black, first woman millionaire in this country, black woman. Um, and a history of taking the money that we've created, I learned backstage that you've been making money since you were seven, <laughs> selling something. Uh, so we know how to make money, right? But this third finding is that, because of an absence of trust in institutions, we put that money in places where it's never going to grow, like the freezer. Mm, yes. It's not going to grow in the freezer. Yep, yep. It's not going to grow under the mattress, and it's not going to grow with your cousin Tommy either. Yep. And so the travesty of us taking that money out because we don't feel comfortable yep. is loss after us. loss after loss. Yep, yep because it doesn't go anywhere. And then the fourth one, and this is a big issue for me, particularly in communities of color and emerging majorities. Before I leave the stage, I'm going to have to talk about how we got to stop using the word minorities, because that's not who we are. Mm. We are emerging majorities and sit in a room and use that language and see how the conversation shifts, Mm. because you are no longer less than, the other side, a little bit of what's left over, but we are emerging majorities as communities of color. But the, the, the painful part of that is that this impact, this racism that I'm talking about, has a palpable impact on our souls. You talked about soul, you talked about yeah. self-esteem. Yeah. And the records of people that we talked to who said, I get so anxious, it just makes me sick. I know I have to go into the bank and I have to prepare for that. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me sick. And this was particularly acute with the Hispanic community. So in a world where we are struggling with chaos and challenges to our souls and our spirit, then you're so damn scared of having a conversation that you recoil and then you go back and put your money in the freezer. Mm-hmm. It's a self-fulfilling, yep. horrible prophecy. Yep. So I never talk about problems unless there are solutions. One, everybody that you had on this stage, make sure we all hold them accountable that the workforce has to be representative. The workforce has to be representative. Number two, in addition to making sure that the workforce is, is, is representative, weed out that bias, that unintentional, but that real systemic bias that is in everything. Three, and, and some of your other speakers talked about this, look differently at how we are assessing risk. Mm-hmm. Assess risk for real people, not for your imaginary perfect person, but assess risk for real people and go into it with an attitude of not, I can't, but I can if. Right. So I can if, and I've heard several of your, your CEOs, other CEOs talk about it. And then the last one is, as my mother would say, open your damn mouth when you see somebody. So when you walk into the bank, greet somebody. Mm. When you have an experience, treat that person like a human being.
4: Yes. yes.
10: So it's pretty simple. Respect me, see me, and I will give you my money. Mm. And I need you to help me grow it, so I can give it and I can make a difference. So and that's I've me. Said,
4: you know, as you, as you were talking, uh, I'm thinking how much you remind me of the silent but strong spirit of Coretta Scott King.
10: I'll uh, take that.
4: Yeah, she, she, she talked. Uh, she didn't have as much emotion in her voice as you have, but it was that same strength, that looked you straight in the eye. Her daughter, Bernice King, who's a friend of ours, has that same spirit today. So I, I commend you for speaking your truth and carrying it with you wherever you go. There's one thing you said that I want to make sure that people watching uh, uh, this broadcast are not fearful of. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. She said, emerging majorities. We're not a minority, fantastic, that's great. But I don't want my white brothers and sisters who may be 55, 60 years old, male, whatever, uh, maybe high school education, sitting in rural someplace, watching this and seeing what she just said as a threat to them. That's wrong. There's enough room here for all of God's children.
10: Right, right, right.
4: I learned early to talk without, and I learned this from Ambassador Andrew Young, talk without being offensive. Right. Listen without being defensive. And always leave even your adversary with their dignity. Yes. Because if you don't, they'll spend the rest of their life trying to make you miserable. Right. It becomes personal. And very much like what you said about we responded to the pain by putting pain on ourselves, by putting the, the, the oh, I'm not gonna give you my money, so we put it in the freezer. Right. Like, like that's doing something. Right. <laughs> right, right. You're just hurting yourself. right Right. But conversely, I don't want my white brothers and sisters to see this beautiful, bold uh, commitment to just our fulfillment of our somebodyness is somehow a threat to them. Uh, when we grow the economy, everybody it's wins. good
10: for everyone. Yeah. It's good for everyone. And, you know, what I say, you know, I, I, I run a company that is mostly white. Uh, you know, we're working on that. Yes so that it is representative. I don't also use the word to diversify. The world and our companies and our stages and our actions have to be representative. Census Bureau is right out there. Um, You know, they just shared the data, about 42%. So it should be representative. But this is not about moving people away. It's making the table bigger and inviting everyone to it. So I'm not um, I'm not trying to move you away, but I am trying to make room. Move us forward. Yeah, so that the table is representative of the real world around St- us.
4: Stephanie rule uh, was with us yesterday, and she said, of NBC, CNBC, she said, it's about expanding the
10: table and adding a seat. Right. So uh, there was a Citigroup. Or or making your own table. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing. You uh-oh. know, go ahead and make your own table. Put your own so table together. Citigroup
4: had a report during the pandemic that showed that 16 that racism against blacks alone in the last 20 years alone, uh, not 200 years and not other races, just 20 years for blacks alone, cost the U.S. economy $16 trillion. And if you would just knock it off right now, just knock it off, the American economy would pick up another trillion dollars a year of GDP, which would, by the way, in four years pay for the stimulus right. from all of last year. That's just that one thing. And so I say in this example we're giving of people should not be afraid, if those with the worst bedside manner, racists in other words, help black people to succeed, if black people succeeded, even the racist wins. Right. Because, right. The, the, because the economy is growing for everybody. Right. And that's why we love math. It does it, 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 <laughs> we love math because it doesn't have an opinion right uh, this is the CEO of, uh, the chairman of Starbucks quote um, Melody Hobson I, I think that we're sitting in this moment in history and I love that you bring not just your passion and your emotion you bring data mm-hmm. what as we wrap up is there a piece of data that, that you carry around with you sort of in your virtual pocket every day that gives you hope for the future that maybe is an indication of where we come from but a hope for the future is there a data point or an inspiration? It's, it?
10: it's actually not a, a data point, John. It's a um, it's a picture, it's a visual, and it looks kind of like this room. Um, when we gather, and we gather with grace, and we gather with data and information, and we gather with positive intent, we get to a good place. And so the data is critical. It is. Everything we do has to be rooted in it, but what drives me, what inspires me, is when I see rooms like this, and I know we can get to a good place. And and I'm so excited to be a part of it.
4: We're so glad excited to have you. Ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.
10: Thank you so much.
3: All right, folks, after this quick break, we will honor, again, retired General Colin Powell, who passed away this week at the age of 84, you're watching Roland Martin unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
2: Oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buicks massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice.
0: Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where you going?
6: Hello, everyone. It's Pierre Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're, we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
3: Many of us were shocked and stunned at the news of the death of retired General Colin Powell, who passed away this week at the age of 84. We wanted to further honor him uh, by replaying the interview that I did with him 10 years ago in Los Angeles, where he was being honored with the NAACP's top honor, the Spingarn Medal. Here he is, that conversation. Well, General Colin Powell certainly welcome to Washington Watch. And, of course, I had to come all the way to Los Angeles yeah, to, yeah, to catch well, up with you, you. caught me there, man. Washington Watch, one of my missed? <laughs> That's what i was LA?
1: saying. <laughs>
3: well, same thing. We talked to Russell Simmons last week on the yeah, show. Yeah. And we never could get him in D.C., yeah. but we caught up with him in, in L.A., so yeah. it happens. So glad to be here at the Beverly well, Hills SLS Hotel.
1: Well, it's good to be with you, Roland, and congratulations on Washington Watch.
3: Well, you know, it's been a fabulous time, and so we love to have the conversation, so let's get right into okay. it. Okay. Uh, definitely, I definitely want to get to, obviously, the award that you're getting, the President's Award uh, from the organization, of course, took place on Friday. Friday night uh, in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but there's so many things happening in the world and your experience is certainly vast in this area. So let's talk about some of that first. Uh, Libya stunning what is happening there, uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, you know, frankly, going after his own people. What do you make of what's taking place in Libya? and?
1: What's really the next step for this country as we watch this whole thing unfold? Well, you know, you have to watch not only Libya, but all the others that have gone through this transition in the last couple of months, Egypt, Tunisia, and there are movements afoot in Bahrain and Yemen and other places. What you're seeing across the North African region and down through the other Arab lands is a yearning for uh, representative government. Mm-hmm. People are saying, why are we being led by these uh, unelected monarchs, or why are we being led by people who may have been elected at one time, but they've been there for 30 years? And so social sites and the people in these regions looking to what happened in the old Soviet Union and how democracy has spread, they want their chance. And now they're pushing back, and they're pushing back with protests and demonstrations and, unfortunately, with quite a level of violence. And that's what's happened in Libya. In Libya, you have Muammar Gaddafi, who's been there forever. And uh, I'm not sure how uh, stable he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he has decided that he will fight his own people. He will kill his own people rather than try to reform or get out of the way and let other forces take over. It's too early to tell where this is going to end up but however it resolves itself in the days and weeks ahead qaddafi's over he's out he's got to leave his time is passed and he ought to understand that and his son the younger uh, saif he ought to understand that you can't stay in power by killing your people and trying to make the whole country a jail. That won't work. When you were Secretary of State, you made it perfectly clear as it relates to how
3: the United States uh, should be looking at the rest of the world. You have U.S. senators saying, hey, let's establish a no-fly zone uh, over that particular country, yet, Others say, wait a minute, the last thing we want is for America to step into a situation where Qaddafi could say, see, they're the ones behind all of these protests. How do you respond to those people who say, let's intervene militarily to assist those fighting for freedom in
1: Libya? There is a danger in intervening, but there's also a danger in, in doing nothing. But I think before you intervene, you better have a clear understanding on whose side you're intervening, for what purpose. What is our national interest in it, other than the moral outrage of seeing people being killed? Because moral outrage takes place in many places throughout the world where we don't intervene. And don't let the vividness of the images drive you to a position that isn't sensible. And you have to ask yourself your question, this question. If we're going to intervene militarily and start bombing and shooting people in order to keep the planes from attacking people, what do we do about the AK-47s? that are attacking people, what do we do about all the weapons that are being mm-hmm. fired back and forth? Uh, can we just pick out a no-fly zone and say, this is terrific? Or are we getting ourselves involved? And so this is a difficult decision for not only the United States, for the but for the international community to make. I think it would be much preferable it was if it was a completely indigenous resolution to this crisis that uh, the people who are protesting and demonstrating and fighting for their rights win but we have to be careful we have to watch it but don't just jump in because uh the heat of the moment suggests you should jump in if you're going to not let their planes fly what are you going to do about the forces the ground forces Mm -hmm. that are really doing the killing the planes don't seem to be uh, doing that much damage compared to what's going on in the ground so what's the difference and if you're going to go in on the ground then you got a whole new ball game and you better think it through carefully as to where we want to go in how would we go in and where we come out Right now, I think just putting pressure on Qaddafi and the regime is the way to go while you take no options off the table, to include military options, Mm -hmm. but be cautious as you decide which military options might be appropriate to bring to a higher level of consideration. On another story,
3: a couple weeks ago, when I saw the story about Curveball basically recanting Mm -hmm. uh, the claims about WMDs in Iraq, you were very upset. Yeah, uh, with that reaction, we've seen uh, former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, come out with his comments. What do you make of the comments that he has made as it relates to what you knew, what you didn't know as it relates to WMDs?
1: Well, I think no, Don, Don and I are, are uh, we, we have other, I have other disagreements about the book, but on this one, we're, we're both in, in the same ballpark. I didn't know that there was a person named Curveball. I didn't know that all the, and no one shared that information with, you? we didn't know about a Curveball. I don't know where the name came from. But I had four days to review the intelligence information and get this presentation ready for the United Nations. And I, I tossed aside anything that was not presented to me by the intelligence community as multi-sourced. And on this specific item, the biological vans, which is, uh, which is what Curveball was the source for, I was assured repeatedly for a period of four days by, the defense, uh, by all of the intelligence agencies, defense and CIA, Uh, that we had four independent sources that could verify this, and they were even able to create pictures of what this van would look like. Uh, And so I went forward uh, with the understanding that this was multi-sourced. It was only months later, many months later, that it started to unravel. And I heard, well, it wasn't four sources. It really turns out to be one source. And oh, by the way, we never interviewed him. Well, I could tell you, I was not a happy camper when all this information came out because I did the big presentation. But we have to keep in mind that that same misinformation was in the National Intelligence Estimate months before I spoke, and it was given to Congress, and then Congress voted a resolution on the basis of that. That same information was in the President's State of the Union address two weeks before I spoke to the UN. So we got bad information. The real question is, why wasn't it known to the intelligence community? And some people say it was known. It just never surfaced to the higher levels. Why didn't we do a better job of finding out what we really knew from this particular source, since we were relying so heavily on him? Two months, three months after the war started, and we had this van in our hands. Uh, it didn't look like any biological van to me, but the CIA was continuing to insist that's what it was, but it wasn't. And it all rested on this one fellow who we now know is Curveball. And so people are asking me, well, uh, did, did you know about it at the time? Of course, I didn't know about it at the time. If I'd ever known that this was a single source. In a German detention facility that we had never interviewed and that there were people within the intelligence community of the United States that felt it was a bad source I never would have used it and is it the key a single source? Just like in
3: journalism you always want to get more than one person to corroborate absolutely general uh, it's one of the issues that has jumped out he's watching the state of politics in this country what's going on uh, some recent comments by Mike Huckabee this week talking about the president being born and raised in Kenya and madrasas, things along those lines what jumped out at me, though, was this whole notion of his worldview. Huckabee saying, we grew up with Boy Scouts in the Rotary Club. What do you make of, as a son of an Im- of immigrants, what do you make of this whole notion that somehow there is one American worldview, as opposed to the many different communities that we grow, grow up in where they're all not the same?
1: Well, there are many uh, worldviews out there, or different views of the world is another way to put it. And in the course of my career, I have been privileged to meet people from all over the world of all races and religions of different political systems, social systems, different histories and cultures. And I think that as an American, I can be very, very proud of my country. And I think my country and my system is unique and the best but not everybody shares that view with me. And so what I want to do is to show others what the American system is all about and why it's worked for us and so many other countries. But let me hear about your system. What are you doing? And for us not to be uh, arrogant in our view of the rest of the world, but to realize it's a big world uh, with lots of different uh, attitudes and points of view out there. With respect to uh, Mr. Huckabee, I, I just think he, he, he was having a, a bad morning. Uh Mr. Huckabee is a decent individual, but I think he would acknowledge now that uh, he misspoke. He has. Uh, but we've kind of knocked this nonsense off. Barack Hussein Obama, as I have said before, was born an American. He is an American. He's never been anything but an American. He was raised, for the most part, in guess where? Hawaii, which is a state. America. <laughs> it's a state. Uh, and so we've, we've kind of got to get rid of all of this nonsense about where he was born and where he was raised. And there's no question in my mind that uh, President Obama, just as every president before him, wishes the best for the American people and is a defender of American values. That's the oath he swore when he was inaugurated. But beyond just a different views different, across know, the world. Know, this is just another way of attacking him politically by throwing up this chaff, as we sometimes call it in the military, to confuse people. Uh, we're trying to confuse people. And to some extent it works there's still people claim right. at a high percentage that he was not born in the United States the birthers but most of those birthers know better they know he was born here they're using this birther issue as another way to attack the president political what bothers me is beyond just you know different
3: views around the world even in this country i'm african-american i grew up in houston texas and so my experience is different than that of somebody who might have grown up in iowa or in california or in new england or in the bronx absolutely and so what happens is when we start hearing these phrases what does middle america think well no i think what does southeast florida think or what is the midwest or southwest other parts of the country and so when we start saying these kind of phrases i think it's in many ways it's coded language
1: it's, it's coded language and it's dangerous and during the 2008 campaign when i was when I was making statements of support for President Obama, I made the point there is not a good America and a bad America. Mm-hmm. There is not, you know, small town America is good and big town America is bad. Uh, don't tell me that I live in a bad America because I was born in Harlem and raised in the South Bronx. I had a great upbringing, and uh, I, I had parents who believed in America with all their strong horses, values, even strong values. Oh, tell me about it. But they were immigrants. Uh, So I am of the immigrant tradition. I come from a a rather modest background. I was a a black kid living in a segregated country, and all that has now changed. And so any American is a good American if that American believes in the country, believes in himself, and is contributing to our society. And we shouldn't fractionate ourselves by north, south, east, west, rural, or urban. You're being honored by the NAACP. You talked about that childhood,
3: talked about your life look you've got tons of awards uh you four-star general you've been you've gotten all kinds of different things but what does it mean for this particular organization to honor you because of its history and what it has meant uh, to the cause of african-americans
1: and really all americans and making this nation a more perfect union well i'm very honored to receive this award I, i'm also a recipient of the spingarn award from mm-hmm. the naacp so it, it means a lot to me to be recognized by this organization i often tell people that uh, i started out in the army just a few years after segregation ended uh, in our armed forces if i come in five or <clears throat> ten years earlier i would not have had the opportunities that i got to go all the way to the top and i worked hard for it i had my commanders who encouraged me and and trained me as i went along but i never forget i always point out to any audience i speak to that i stand on the shoulders of thousands of black men and women who served in combat for the armed the armed forces of the united states who never had the opportunities i had and if they hadn't served and demonstrated they could do the job i would not be where i am and we also had organizations like the naacp in the darkest days of our country's history in that post-civil war period in the beginning of 1909 on was the naacp among other organizations it was the naacp that constantly drove this case that America if it's going to be faithful and true to its Constitution and to its Declaration of Independence it had to change and without that kind of pressure coming from the NAACP we would not be where we are today and I will always be grateful to all of those who were part of that second Civil War that the NAACP was a leader in
3: for General Colin Powell. Congratulations Thanks. on the NAACP Image Award, the President's Award, and look forward to chatting with you again in Washington.
1: Thank you, Roland. Thanks a
3: bunch. I want to thank TV One for uh, allowing me uh, to be able to show that interview to you folks. Uh, it was uh, certainly an honor uh, to talk with him then. We had many conversations and we would see each other ever since then, and so we certainly will miss him. And of course, uh, he's going to have a major funeral uh, take place on November 5th. The National Cathedral, uh, where it will certainly be standing room only, uh, honoring the life and legacy of one of America's greatest patriots and a brother who was indeed a brother that is, retired General Colin Powell. Folks, that is it for us. We appreciate uh, you uh, watching, us being here in Atlanta. It's been a fantastic week. We've been here, great conversations, great interviews. We will live stream the entire uh, conference. And so if you go to Blackstar Network, you can see all three days of the Global uh, Hope Forum, so folks check that out. Uh, Again, you don't want to miss it. Some fantastic conversations, some great folks who are here committed to black economic social justice, and so please do so. And of course, we always end the show by showing you those of you, all the folks who support us via our Bring the Funk Fan Club. If you wanna join, what we ask is, we're trying to get 20,000 folks annually to give 50 bucks, a minimum of 50 bucks each. And so that's four hours and 19 cents a month, 13 cents a day. If you can join our Bring the Funk Fan Club, Cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. Venmo.com is forward slash RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R-Martin Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollingmartin.com martincom rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com And so here's our list of all of our folks who are members of the fan club. Folks, thanks a bunch. I will see you on Monday. Y'all take care. Hi!
7: to be smart.
6: Roland Martin's doing this every day. Oh, no punches! Thank you, Roland Martin, for always giving voice to the issues. Look for Roland Martin in the whirlwind, to quote Marcus Garvey again. The video looks phenomenal, so I'm really excited to see it on my big screen. support this man, Black
5: media. He
9: makes sure that our stories are told.
7: See, this the difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. I gotta defer to the brilliance of Dr. Carl. And to the brilliance of the Black Star Network. I am rolling with Roland all the way. Honored to be on a
4: show that you own. A black man <laughs> owns the show. Folks, Black Star Network is
0: here. I'm real uh, revolutionary right now. Like, wow. Roland was amazing on that. Hey, black,
6: I love y'all. I can't commend you enough about this platform that you've created for us to be able to share who we are, what we're doing in the world, and the impact that we're having.
0: Let's be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You
3: can't be black on media and be scared. You dig?